All right, here we go. You ready? Guys, welcome. Is ready? So sit down. Oh shit! I'm gonna grab one of my things. Welcome to Sisters with Brothers. We have <laughs> everyone. Give to. <laughs> Thank you. Yo, shout out to to uh, Pastel Shade, our DJ, our KJ. Our everything, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's have all our conversation shit starters come up to the. Shit starters. <laughs> oh, see the biggest one. Shit starters to the front. Let's go. <laughs> have a seat. Maybe we need some more seats, huh? There's like a stool or something. Yeah, you guys are good. Oh yeah. Oh, careful the guitar. So, oh yeah, I'll take that one, yeah. Put it over here on the side. Give you another, maybe can I grab this chair too? Candace, you can have, you wanna sit on the ground? Okay. All right. Are you sure, Candace? You're okay? No, it's just like whatever. Yeah, make yourselves comfortable. Sorry, I'm like holding two microphones. All right. So, welcome to Sisters with Brothers, conversation about uh, black internet theory. Wow. So, um, the reason why I felt this conversation was relevant, I mean, it's not just myself that, that feels it's relevant. Um, the subject of like the usage of the the image of people of color originally came into my mind because I had my own experience of um, being exploited by Adidas at a young age, uh, where I was I was put in a global campaign without my permission, and I was unpaid, um, and I was like about 24 years old at that time, or maybe like 26, and it's taken me almost 10 years to kind of process uh, the depth of, of, um, of, of use of image. Um, Mandy's helped me, Candace has helped me a lot in that. Oh, sorry, Sina, I didn't mean to throw paper at you. Um, but, um, you know, um, historically people of color have been, uh, we've been used in front of the camera. Uh, as fodder for uh, so long and unpaid um, and treated with uh, a lack of, of regard. And then, you know, the history of that, it goes so deep um, and it permeates into all of our lives today, black, white, whatever, whatever color you are. Um, and with the use of apps and social media and image culture, we have lost um, a sense of of a there's of critique accessibility or spaces to critique and critique is important um, and conversations um, 
around those uh, around that subject matter. So, uh, and reparations, in terms of reparations, um, that's why I have all these people up here, uh, was the thought of um, how reclaiming media and all of us becoming more empowered to do so. And uh, that's what Sisters is here for, is to help people of color kind of have a space and a place in, um, in reclaiming media and access and being uh, able to survive in the, um, in the industry and beyond. So uh, what I want to do is I'm going to start with everyone introducing themselves, and we're going to going to start with where you're from. Oh, the, the conversationalist, we're going to do that first. So I'm going to have everybody say where they're from, a little, say a little thing about themselves and where they live, and then after that, we're going to go into uh, Candice. We're going to start with Candice Williams, incredible, incredible artist, brilliant. Really, mind Cassandra Press. She has um, works back there for sale. So we're gonna start. With, it's in it's in order for a reason. So we're gonna start with Candice, and then we're gonna go to uh, Mandy Harris Williams, share her theories, and then Ruth, all the way up here from Berkeley, California. Um, so we're going from. Um, Candice, Mandy, to Ruth. Um, all right, so my name's Amelian, Amelian Cashero Hamilton. I'm from Anchorage, Alaska. And um, yeah, I'm a wardrobe stylist, founder of Sisters, um, and visual artist, yeah, so that's me. I'll start with you, and here you go, Sinai. Oh, I thought he was, oh, he just meant, okay. <laughs> Hello, my name is Sinai Kinfei. I'm from Long Beach, California. <laughs> Sorry, I was, that was a lot, I ate a lot of crackers while I was waiting for the, this is the star. Uh, this is my natural voice, like Prince, you know. Uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm a community activist and advocate, uh, a housing advocate. Um, I work with a group called uh, Tenants United in Long Beach, you know, helping people in the community uh, acquire ownership of the, the neighborhoods that we have been redlined into. So thank you for having me. Wait, also, you mentioned you ran for office. Well, well, you ran for Okay. The unofficial mayor. The unofficial mayor already. Um, oh, hi, I'm Candace Williams. Uh, I'm from Baltimore. I'm a little scattered today, so thank you all for coming. It's one of those days. Yeah, it's one of those days. It's a nice Sunday for this conversation, yeah. Um, what else? I'm an artist and in some dimension doing some sort of art activist, but work, activistic work maybe, um, via re-archiving uh, in this capacity through Cassandra Press. So check out our table back there, and I'm gonna talk to you guys about some readers that we have out right now that are relevant to the topic. My name is Xavier Reed. Um, I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm down here on vacation right now visiting family. Um, I'm a million's cousin. Um, <laughs> I taught her how to play Donkey Kong back in the day <laughs> on the Super Nintendo, but um, no, I'm a, I'm a principal at a middle school out in, um, in Minneapolis, so in the education field, me and my wife are both down here. She's also in education, so uh, you know, we have a, an insight on you know, what, what's happening with the kids um, and what we see on a daily basis, so happy to be here. Hi, I'm Ruth. I'm visiting from the Bay Area. And uh, I'm a culture writer, and memes are one of the things I write about, and that's what I'll talk about later. Right. So succinct. <laughs> I'm going to be less succinct. 
I was born. <laughs> I'm Mandy Harris Williams, and I am uh, a ham, a critical theorist, a conceptual artist, and I have an activation of all of those things. Um, that takes place on Instagram, largely under the heading hashtag brown up your feed. I'll talk to you about that later, as well as some memes. Thank you. Welcome. Hi, my name is Whitney Gibson. Uh, I work in the film and beauty industry. I do nails on set. I'm an artist and a photographer, and I do a radio show about sex called Wits and Giggles that you guys should all listen to if you want to hear my personal business. I'm trying to hear that. I'm Alima Lee. I am a filmmaker, artist, and uh, I DJ sometimes. Um, <laughs> I know it's too much. <laughs> it's not what I'm trying to do. Um, I am from New York, but largely raised in LA, um, by coastal mostly. Um, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, happy to be. We bi coastal niggas, both of us. This is my Harlem princess, Mandy. Um, yeah, nice to be here with all of you. Thank you. Okay, I'm like very boring compared to you guys. My name is Maceo, and thank you for that. Um, that really spruced up my whole like bio section actually because I didn't have anything prepared. I'm, um, I claim Virginia as where I'm from, and uh, I, um, what were, I think that's it, right? Just where we're from. What do you do? Oh, and I'm a, I'm a professional people watcher. And you just wrote a book. Yeah, but that's like okay, that's okay, that, that's is, fine. that is included in the and, professional uh, people okay. watcher. Okay, all encompassing. Yo, what up? My name is Def Sound. Uh, I am an artist, poet, DJ, uh, and I write music, well, mantra that is activated by music. Uh, and I'm born, watered, and raised South Central LA. That's it. Thank you for having me. All right, cool. So Candace is gonna start, and just so you guys know, this is this is a conversation, but what we're going to do is give space for Candace and these women to share their theories and what they've been working on, and then from there, we'll, like, it, it will be more open floor. So go ahead, Candace. You are... Cool, yeah, so I'm going to try to make it really a conversation since I don't think I can carry, <laughs> carry too much of it alone. But to get to, I guess... Um, a conversation, and this is no, by no means my theory also. Like, so what I'm going to show you guys are these readers that are readers that I compiled on the topic of misogynoir. After coming back to the States, um, we can pass them around too, as long as y'all promise that they get back to the table. But this is the first one. Uh, the, first, the first misogynoir is on, um, the first volume is on Mammy, Jezebel, and Sapphire. So their history and the sort of fallout and the issues that are presented to the black femme body in space and time and law and love and sexual politics right now. So um, there, yeah, this is the one we're gonna kind of focus on. And this one, we can like start with you, baby. 
This one's on more colonialism, sexuality, and slavery. And so sort of the, the more corporeal, like the more bodily um, sort of traps. Uh, and this reader is actually on fetishism, which I think is probably like rounding out this conversation a little bit more. So it talks a little bit about like consumer narcissism, sort of like the profile culture that we live in now, which ties into, um, especially for uh, black bodies, uh, so many of these archetypes that are set into our legal system and then effectively police us. So I'm gonna pass the fetishism one around. Cool, so, um, yeah, I guess that the reader started out of this kind of desire to understand a lot of, after living outside of America for most of my adult life, coming back here, um, there, it felt like there was always in any kind of communication this lag between what I'm saying or doing or you know, communicating and what people appraise that communication as or interpret that communication as or you know, decide what that communication functions as or means. And it was driving me actually fucking crazy. So coming back and then speaking my own language and still feel, or my native language and feeling like that language wasn't communicating anything sort of started me to asking these questions um, uh, yeah, around representation, communication, um, this space of, of imagination and image as, as a space of social control or as a space that, space that starts writing social scripts. So I wanna talk tonight about, I'm just gonna kinda go through the three main points I wanna hit, which are um, the sort of the early social contracts that are set up for non-Anglo-Saxon bodies in this country. Um, and the operations that they performed during slavery, especially like around and through the biographies of black femmes, uh, women who are, or who are yeah, slaves by law. Uh, so I'm gonna talk about those operations during slavery, then I wanna talk about operations post-slavery in terms of the extension of those social contracts via uh, uses of language and image. So we're gonna talk then about Sapphire, Mammy, and Jezebel and what their functions are for performing social control. Um, then we'll talk a little bit about fetishism and sort of the aesthetic realm, and I want to bring into the conversation um, at the end the, an issue of iconicity. So when we're going into the, the further creation of, or generation of symbols, icons, visual strategies of resistance, how we still end up performing or living through the operations or functions of these images um, that codify slavery. So, that sounds like a lot. Let's see if we do that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I'm gonna kind of rewind like back a bit to 1658 and the case of a woman named Elizabeth Key. So Elizabeth Key was an African woman, a slave woman in Virginia's colonies, and she bore uh, a, a single male child for, um, and I forget his name always, I think it's something like Anthony Burgess, but for the uh, representative of the House of Burgess. Um, she successfully, after his death, he willed her and her son uh, property, and she would have inherited a, a title, so the family would have inherited a, um, a, a title in the commons. Um, this was denied to her, categorically, and so she sued for her inheritance. She won in a British court um, the title, the property, and lived a life pretty, you know, pretty um, privileged after that. This case becomes a very like pivotal case because it's, it starts to point to these questions of interraciality uh, in the early colonies. Who is, um, 
who's a, a dominant force, who's a force that can claim property, who's a force that can retitle land, who's a force that can, what kinds of people have the right to retitle land? Because you have in this time like so many different kinds of people, especially starting new social contracts, contracts that don't have to do with Western Europe, um, but also actually dealing with property extensions and capital extensions from Western Europe. So. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a strain that we can follow from Elizabeth Key's case into the formation of the 1664 slave codes. And what we kind of have to step back to and understand is that in 1664, there's three main colonial forces in the states at that time, the French, the Spanish, and the English. The slave codes are the English codes. There's also the Code Noir and the um, Mestizo codes happening in, in the south. Uh, in the north, these codes end up becoming things that safeguard Anglo-Saxon property inheritance. So in terms of law, I can give like three um, cases of black femme bodies that have, that have had to negotiate constantly with this idea of the, the being a site for inheriting property. So like with actual kind of, um, the, the stakes of reproduction are so high uh, around the case of Elizabeth Kean and the formation of the slave codes that um, there's, a British, there's a British doctrine in 1662 called partus sequitur ventrum. Uh, instated, which says that any slave mother inherently bears a slave child. So the child takes the cast of the mother. This is like really uh, intense because it, it, um, it basically reconfigures all other forms of patriarchy before the American context. Like normally rape is used to further advance a, a, a civilization or a demographic. So the claiming of children of rape was pivotal to most patriarchies. This strange subversion, this crazy uh, transgressive inversion of patriarchy produces a cast of white fathers that have absolutely no moral claim to their children, but also a cast of children um, that are interracial that have no claim to any of the access of the father, access to the legal stability or, or citizenship of the father. So the production of like a slave culture, a slave, not a slave, just a slave culture. Um, the production of, of a kind of slave body that, that is silent in the name of the law is produced. And the, the, also the production of a black femme body that is the, the basically the vehicle for these bodies is produced. So all of these methods of policing that body end up becoming the next like drama of 200 years of legal, uh, legal cases. So I wanna kind of bring us to um, Sally Hemings who in 1770, I wanna say four, like two years before the revolution, um, I think she's 14 years old at the time, don't fact check me on this, but you know, look it up. Uh, that, that sounds rough fishy to me. But she was very young. He was 44 and she was 14, that's for sure. And it's in the 1760s, 70s, 70s. Uh, Thomas Jefferson takes this uh, slave girl um, as a concubine. Sally Hemings bears for him four children. Sally Hemings is also like to step even a little bit further back, um, the sister of Martha Jefferson. This is how like concubinage kind of starts to inform a lot of those social contracts. Um, concubinage especially informs the social contract of um, a kind of problematic silence around, let's wait, wait for it, reproduction, sexuality, domination, and there's all of these sort of like like uh, char like characteristics of the black femme as, as term in terms of sexual availability that are birthed in this period because the social contract mandates that she just bears and bears inconsequentially. 
Um, so Sally Hemings bears these, these bears over like the course of I think 20 years, four children for Sally, for Thomas Jefferson. Her case is really interesting and really contemporarily necessary to look at, I think, again, because out of over 1,500 descendants of Thomas Jefferson, about half identify as black and about half identify as white. So we can really clearly trace how um, colorism, how uh, racial identity end up becoming and constructing a, a legal identity, a sense of not just legal identity, but also legacy. Um, so Sally Hemings is, uh, is negotiating for her, the, the, the freedom of her children throughout her life. And she actually, when Thomas Jefferson dies, lives a free woman. Two of her sons move on into white society. Um, and I think a daughter and another son stay in black society. So again, the concubine becomes this real site of, of not just social control, but almost like the, the pathway into white citizenship or black abject uh, disenfranchisement. So almost like becomes a portal or a gateway, that figure. Um, in 1855, there's a case of Celia the slave. Celia versus Missouri. Um, Celia is a slave who was, again, raped from a very early age throughout her entire life by her master. She bears two sons for him, or two children for him. Um, she decides, and there's a lot of conspiracy as to why she's decided this, but she decides one day that she doesn't want to get, doesn't want to have a sexual relationship with him anymore. She uh, advances his sister, or his daughter, and asks his daughter to please help stop the, the sexual misconduct, the rape. Um, the daughter denies her any, any help or assistance, and so Celia makes a bat and waits for him. <laughs> like, dude comes through and yeah, she, you know, handled it. Like, so yeah, she, she fucked him up. She, yeah, she fucked him up and she cut him into little pieces and she burned him. And then she took the pieces of him and scattered it throughout his plantation. And then she slept, like then she went to sleep and in court testifies to like having a really good night's sleep that night. So yeah, Celia's case, again, don't take my word for it. Look for the transcripts. You can find a lot of the transcripts in the Library of Congress. There's been two books written about her. Um, the case happens over the course of three months. And it's, again, shocking. And you can witness, again, this portal and how many different sort of avenues or networks of social connection the black femme body becomes uh, responsible for not just initiating, but also foreclosing. You know, Celia, in murdering her, her um, her master enters into a trial where at the time in Missouri, any rape is, is uh, a capital crime. So her defense lawyers basically mount a case of self-defense, which the judge denies because she's property. So Celia's case is relevant now because of all these, I mean, when we look at, um, who was the white lady at, in the Supreme Court? Which one? Uh, the, the sexual harassment case. Anita. Uh, not Anita Hill. The most recent. Christine Kavanaugh, yeah. So like, oh, if we look at the Kavanaugh case and, and, and Anita Hill cases and sexual harassment cases, this is like Cecilia builds this first volume of you have no right to self-defense. You don't get to defend yourself against the sexual antagonism or sexual assault of, of a master. So the relationship of the black femme to property is really sealed with Celia. Or the black femme to also as a, a, a vic as a victim less, a victim void, a, like a non 
victim in the eyes of the law is really solidified in Celia, and that's 1885. So I wanna kinda jump into the 1920s and post-emancipation um, and talk about the third sort of woman in this, which is the black gal. And to move into sort of the aesthetic dimension, post-emancipation, these laws are going to, are, well, they're, they're actually fucked, you know? Like, again, something you should look into yourself. I think there's um, a few Yale Open Course lectures on reconstruction taught by Jonathan Holloway that are really informational. But every state has to reapply for entry into the union. So all the states reapply for entry based on their own economics, their own um, their own losses during slavery, or like the, the the economic losses of slave bodies and slave capital, but also you know investment losses, um, losses of labor, other kinds of indentured labor. So the Civil War and post-emancipation sees the birth of kind of a new operation of, of control, which is a control in terms of the pictorial and public space, and in terms of language and image. So the black gal is this gal that moves from slavery into emancipation as almost an aesthetic space of moral cautionary tales. The, the body of the black woman between the black gal um, comes through in, in blues songs and aesthetic traditions, in black media, in um, so many aspects of also marketing. The image of like the, the black girl actually is used on cans of face creams to lighteners, lards. Um, the black gal becomes almost like a, a spiritual marking place for like the necessity of, of good parenting after slavery, of, um, I mean, for so many, yeah, for so many different activists, the black gal becomes the, the center of a kind of new moral life for black people. So also becomes under the same surveillance, moralistically, sexually, financially. What year was that again? Um, this is, I'm just kind of like generalizing oh, okay. this, this like aesthetic dimension in where we show up in blues, I feel like is probably, yeah, post-emancipation. So like, I'm thinking maybe like 1850s, like around like before, but then 1850s probably to like 1930s, 1940s. So that's a that's a very important point. Mm -hmm. uh, do you guys understand that? That's when the image they started to take the image of black women and use it and commodify it. Totally correct as a form of control. As a form of and and, and not just in a way like lateral. Like in in one way, the planners' movement, which is another thing to research, is like actually how those states got readmitted into the union, where specific bankers, politicians, post-slave owner or like slave owning um, men who were petitioning for their individual states to be re uh, re-entering re-enter the union under certain guidelines. So this is how the the Jim Crow laws start to be initiated. So like Southern petite bourgeois former slave owners who have investments in the North can say, okay, if we um, join the union again, we'll give you this 80% of our cotton yield into this company. It gets dissolved into this company. But also, we want this Southern general reinstated as a, a, like a marshal to watch over the Negroes of this. Or we want contracts, peonage contracts, so that when we rearrest criminal slaves, we can form work groups and work camps. So like peonage laws, and this is this is structural racism. This is also the rebirth of structural racism. Structural racism not written as Anglo-Saxon anymore, but written as anti, specifically anti-Negro, specifically anti-black, without the mention of race. So this is again why like language and image becomes so important in policing race, is because it's it's now a colorblind constitution. So the foreclosures all that all happen around 
um, helping the freedmen, helping the, uh, the newly freed slaves around the time of like W.E.B. Du Bois are by the 1920s completely, the federal government's completely pulled out of trying to help relocate, uh, re-educate or educate or enfranchise black, like former, former slaves. So this is like the, that's like kind of the groundwork for why these images become so important. Mammy, Jezebel, and Sapphire are kind of born in this time. Um, also, we think of narratives like King Kong, Heart of Darkness, this sort of like the literary specter of like the, the black rapist, the black male rapist, the literary specter of the, the, even what we would call the welfare mom, who's just this sort of like black gal, blues mom, um, the suffering woman, the hating, the, the angry woman, the, the nagging woman, like these all, all these like sort of archetypes become really important for domination and for creating a white imagination of blackness that needs policing, that needs for further control. So they, they form like this sort of affective governance where the emotional charge becomes the way that it's like um, laws become enforced. So it's really important then to demonize, to vilify, to um, yeah, to create images that, that help expand a rage or a fear or an anxiety around the image of the black bot, the black person. Along with lynching photos of the 20s, we see um, yeah, a, a fetishism arise in art uh, art production spaces. So there's the recording of the first Negro spirituals around 1850 that become largely popular American music. There's um, cabarets to, I mean, we know we know these people from the 20s, the Josephine Baker, the um, uh, French, French, what is it, the noir, no, they just become obsessed, whatever. Like French fetishism. <laughs> like yields, yeah, the negritude, yeah. Movements are um, coming to fruition. So there's like this fascination with, especially during modernity, of the black body as a body that sells, that titillates, that produces um, sexual tensions, that produces also this sort of strangely, uh, strange narrative of freedom or freedom of expression, the wildness, the, the tap of the hyper soul. Even the fact that it's called soul music, it's like, you know, black music and music from black speakers and bodies is starting to become fetishized and reproduced at a level of culture that's separate from black rights and black actual like judicial rights, civil rights, uh, citizenship. And this is this, this, I mean, I can't stress enough how much I feel like this becomes dominant through image. Um, the myth of different sorts of abusers, that black bodies become different sorts of abusers, are tied directly to product placements. Um, social fears of the Jezebel are exactly those fears of Jezebel, to, to break, y'all know Jezebel, Mammy, and Sapphire? So Mammy is the thick woman who, the, the, the thicker black woman who's like a, been a wet nurse for white children and disregarded her own children. So this, this stereotype is raised to epic proportions in like, you know, the turn of the century from Aunt Jemima, there's coffee pots, there's you know, land, um, what is it, land dolls, what are they? The things on the ground, wow. Oh, the lawn. Lawn jo yeah, the lawn jockeys. You know, like there's tchotchkes of all kinds, from hand mittens to um, whatever you can imagine, a k kitchen tools. Yeah, you know, kitchen. like that are in the in the form of mammy cookie jars, in the form of mammy. Mammy is this space of black uh, servitude, but also the submission of the black femme body to that level of servitude, like to an almost spiritual level of servitude. Exactly. Hattie McDaniels in 1940 wins um, uh, the first Oscar that a black femme body wins in film for, uh, for playing a mammy in Gone with the Wind. Like 
giving uh, compassion to the white side of the Civil War, right? Right, yeah, totally. But yeah, that starts 100 years before Hattie McDaniels wins the night Oscar in 1940. It starts in the 1840s with actual, um, yeah, the actual sort of slave inside, inside, like a house slave position of the mammy, which is also then codified throughout that 100 years in literature, in film, and in um, <clears throat> social contracts. Uh, domestic labor becomes one of the only places, for instance, where black women can earn any money until the 50s, you know? Still, I mean, we would, we would even question that today, I think. Um, Jezebel, Jezebel becomes this space where uh, the social policing of interraciality is really all the fears around interraciality and interracial production become very clear. Jezebel is the hypersexualized, normally mulatto already, um, long-haired seductress. Uh, she provides uh, the white gaze with, you know, space to really perform this kind of like anxiety over the fetish, over fetishism. Also, she provides a space to again deny moral rights and to deny proper property rights to uh, the mothers of interracial children through her sinfulness or whatever. There's a whole genre of films called passing films that are from like the 20s to the 40s, really um, it, it just insane. I can, I can like maybe provide a link with, uh, with a few titles. Um, but they're also normally played by white women. These characters are normally played by white women. Um, the Tragic Mulatto is, again, throughout so much literature, throughout so much film, really you know, constantly instated as this specter of why mixing with the white man is bad or of why, you know, mixing with a black woman is bad, you know, like, or provide, like, just problematic. Um, she is sort of the, uh, like one of the weird twins. All of these characters are like, we talked about it kind of last time, like in a weird way, a timeline and sort of like um, significant social spacing. So like Jezebel often turns into a sapphire who often turns into a mammy. So this sort of, um, yeah. <laughs> so sapphire is like right in between. If Jezebel is something like maiden and mammy is something like mother, then Jezebel is something, or crone, then mammy is something like, or Jezebel, no, sorry. If Jezebel is something like maiden, mammy is something like crone, then mother would be sapphire. And sapphire, I think, provides this space for um, the fear of black femme education and the fear of black femme social and legal agency. So black, so, so Sapphire is nagging. She nags constantly. She polices black male bodies through her anger and aggression, sometimes physical violence she performs on black male bodies, but she also polices the white gaze, so she talks back, um, often to her actual, like, physical death or dismemberment, but a lot of, again, these like sort of, I can provide a list of different characters, but from, from literature and from film, but Sapphire is like the hand-waving, angry black woman. So again, just as an archetype and as a trope, this, like, this space provides this, um, this fear of the articulate, educated, or in somehow per, like in, on purpose resisting black femme body. So Sapphire is really important too, I think, to a lot of, um, how we qualify women, black women with higher education right now. That's me. Um, where are we? The phallic mothers. Yeah. So this sort of like all of these, all of these, all of these characters, I think, also keep forming this aesthetic space. And aesthetic just basically means art, like artistic, but aesthetic meaning artistic without ethics. 
you know, artistic space and what I'm going to call art working space is an art is a space where producing an image with an ethical boundary actually produces like um, a sense of sharing or witnessing together a, tra a traumatic event. What these archetypes actually do is reinstate social contracts and really pin um, experiential the experiential dimension underneath of image. So you can't, as a black woman, be angry in public without being, without being called on, without that sapphire being called on to explain you before you start talking. This goes back to like why I was tripping earlier. <laughs> um, you can't like, you know, move in a, in a filmic or aesthetic space without somehow the mammy being like called on as an archetype, without the mammy being, you can't like, operate in a, in a maternal space or a domestic space without the mammy being called on. Um, are you living up to Mammy? Are you not? I think it, it's three ways too. You know, it's like it's internal, how we relate to ourselves. I think Jezebel in her, you know, sort of like lust and sex and corporeal dimension ends up being internalized very much, I think, through puberty and through sexual interaction and education. So that becomes like a kind of internal dimension, I think. As an archetype, you're always like, am I doing the right thing with my moral sexual self? You know, respectability politics are born against the Jezebel, where we socially organize as black folk to not perform that, you know what I mean, in public. Um, so yeah, so these archetypes end up forming like almost like a sea of symbols and signs that we end up living through. Like almost like Mario Kart, you know, like they're just like above, like everywhere we go. <laughs> and we kind of like, I think, tap into them at certain points affectively or not, but they also sort of form as a, like they become a form of governance. They become a form of how we end up policing ourselves, which I do feel is, was the intention of their production. Um, could you give like some modern, like if you could place like people that we identify with and know now into each of those like categories, could you? Right, totally. So when this, in this idea of beauty as policing, one thing that's super fr frustrates me and fucks with me is this, this like, like casual use of the word icon because these are our icons, you know what I mean? Like people are like, iconic, don't th think about that. You know what I mean? Like, like hold up on that because what's iconic to us and around us and through us as an image is normally some operation of Mammy Jezebel Sapphire or some operation of further social control. So like to talk about how like uh, especially slavery ends up as a form of PTSD that's like really inherited right now through film these archetypes and these characterizations, uh, the icon, the diva, the crack hoe, the respectability politics, the lack of 4C hair visible all the time, the biopic even, you know, like let's think about the last like six black femme biopics that we've seen and how outrageously non-respectful, just disrespectful. The Nina Simone, I mean, yeah, I'm, wow. That was like, out of control, the I Nina just, Simone. Wow, like that's, yeah, yeah. like I was like, wow. So much there. That's just like the fuck. <laughs> and and can we say that that's like because of the people who are telling the stories, especially mm -hmm. right? That, and the means uh, of production. And the means of production. and the means of production. Like we've seen a few waves of what what we would call what socially black power movements, you know. And these black power movements also have, you know, the run the risk and the responsibility of being consumed by these images of the King Kong, the the, the crack hoe, the welfare mother, the mammy, the Jezebel, the sapphire, but also they run a risk of needing to produce those images in order to be heard in the first place. This is like the, the um, 
amplification of gang violence through cinema, the amplification of especially black prostitution and sexual availability through cinema, the amplification of, and, and without the, the follow-up ethical space, right, of like ending these ails. <laughs> they are like the, the, the production of images that, that form a, a regime, a scopic regime that polices, that further polices um, our bodies. So I guess I kind of want to end, I'm going to end and not talk anymore about that, but the, 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 the idea of black power, I feel as a collage artist constantly, or, and not even black power, but a cohesive cultural history or legacy through the images that we have now that have been produced, not by us, not for us, but as control, methods of control, methods of policing, at, like with the intention to be internalized and pr produce destructive behavior or self-destructive behavior. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm asking, what are we doing with these archetypes and these segregating images, these images that perform more segregation? Um, Mammy, Jezebel, and Sapphire. Uh, yeah, in there. What's your name? Candace. <laughs> it's Candace Williams. Um, thank you so much, Candace. <laughs> um, yeah. Did you have more? Did you have more? Are you still going? No. No, we can. Do we can? Yeah. Does anyone have any we, questions we do, for Candace? Should, well, should <laughs> we do everybody and then go into it, maybe? Or should we? How would you feel? While it's fresh. While it's fresh. Um, yeah, yeah, let's do two. Um, also, too, just so you guys know, can you turn your phones off if you have your phones on? That would be great. Um, also, too, just so you know, um, if this is being, this is this will be in podcast form, just so you know. And so if there's anybody, anybody that doesn't give consent to being recorded, even in your question, or if you, like, you're taking space, just say, like, just say it, and we'll cut it out. Just, it's, like, out of respect. So, um, okay, so who, any, we'll do a couple questions and then we'll like move over to Mandy's, but we're gonna have a full conversation. Does anybody have any like direct, anything direct to say? Okay, oh wait, we'll go to Ray and then, um, and then, oh, sorry, thanks, Sina. Yeah. Hey, um, mine is more just a, a clarification. I think at the end you were uh, sharing about the relationship of, um, us maybe having some type of reclamation of power or the construct of black power and how it's um, complicated by the use of these tropes. Is that, was that the point? Okay, all right, I guess I just had to say it out loud. <laughs> okay, thanks. Hi, thank you so much, yeah, I love the presentation. Point. I was wondering if you could speak to like the influence of religion on these codes and archetypes and if you have any sort of insight into that aspect of the equation? Of religion? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, sure. Uh, okay, well, if we like step way, way outside of this, then one of the first, you know, sort of like breeding grounds for, I think, a kind of like representational, uh, a form of like social control or organizing social contracts through representation happened with the expansion of Christianity. So the Roman road that became the Christian road that became the colonial road, um, I think is also very much present in how we um, piece apart uh, kind of contract law here, but then also how we end up piecing apart, you know, moral law and the conflation of the two. Um, is very, I don't know, it's hella Christian. This is like contemporary, this is the paradoxes of contemporary Christianity. Also in terms of images, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, um, I think really split, or like a kind of like paradigm that end up giving the full force of what 
the aesthetic dimension can really do in terms of getting to your heart, your head, your heart, and your, you know, the feet, the footsteps you take, the, the actual physical steps you take. So like seeing how, especially the images of Mary, Jesus, um, uh, you know, even the donkey got became white <laughs> on this side, you know what I mean? So yeah, just like seeing how those images and images of that actual, like that religion um, show up here, I think it's exactly the same thing, the sort of will to power as it's organized through the pictorial. Thank you. Does anybody else have? Yes, let me go over that way. Hi, Jackie. Look at all these people. You know, if there's more seats up here. If anybody wants to move up. Wait, question. Oh, sorry. Here you go. Yeah. Hey, y'all. So I think, um, thank you, Candice. I really appreciate um, some insight that you brought here. But it just, to me, sounded like, and it feels like it's really easy to trace things back to a certain thing and back to all these things. But I just want to know and what hopefully this panel can provide as a speak a way forward and really um, like, can I actually create images that are outside of those archetypes as a black woman, you know, like, you know, in terms of subverting those images or am I always going to be pigeonholed into like, you know, just speaking on that a little bit because I feel like, especially in this day and age, it's like really easy to get bogged down by that weight and that history and that trauma and it's like, Ultimately, I think we all want liberation, and so this is right. kind of what this... Well, I can, say, I can say two things to that. One is that I first gave this lecture at a writing group that was a black femme writing group, so just coming together. I, oh, you were yeah, there, yeah, coming together. There, but I heard about it. Oh, yeah. okay, so, well, yeah, we came together to write, you know, and especially to talk, Justice, um, Justice organized this talk on character and character development, how we can end up or start to sort of write characters through and about us, you know? Um, so... There's that. I think that you know. There's you know. I don't, even a broken tool is a tool at the end of the day. So, the refinement of those things is really, is is necessary. Um, but then also, I don't think any of these archetypes are one-way streets. None of these archetypes or these characterizations are dead matter. You know, they're what they the the what the, the space that the mammy provided of security and of safety for future generations of black women is also incalculable and immense. So the way that the gaze also offers, um, you know, has, has, be, has made the way that these, these, these archetypes have become icon has provided safe space and provided negotiable <laughs> space for uh, everyone who exists underneath of them. Like I'm really thinking in this Mario Kart kind of way where it's like it becomes a path too. Um, so that's, that's in a way like maintaining these margins or maintaining these scripts has opened up so much space. The Jezebel, I mean, if you think about the Jezebel, that's all of our divas, you know? The titillation of that space has been a huge cultural productive space, a space that's enabled us to use white tools or to use white means of production um, to be respected under, you know, white legal systems and to also, you know, amass capital and extract capital from white systems. The minstrel, I would say it again, like the minstrel is one of the hardest working black bodies that's ever, you know, that's one of the hardest working bodies in history. So the production of capital through the body of the Jezebel, the maintenance of um, domesticity, the maintenance of property through the mammy, um, Sapphire's push for education, you know what I mean? So like the, the way that Sapphire also indicates like this, this very thought agency, this thought process, this thinker, uh, has also led us to a lot of negotiable space in white popular culture. 
So these, these, um, these, they're like rivers, you know what I mean? They're not foreclosures. So in that way, I wouldn't say that they're off limits or that they're even burdensome. The thing is like, we, we kind of like have to recognize that the gaze looks back and we look, you know, like we look at it. So there's a cycle of, uh, and the aesthetic dimension does do this very powerful thing where it opens up the space of like the head, the heart and the foot, you know? Every foot tapping to a Sam Cooke song has provided the, the le some part of the legal space for the push towards more just like civil rights, you know? Every uh, magazine cover, every new hairstyle has provided some space for the further protection of black children. So these aesthetics and this art, these kinds of artworking that are generated from black bodies through these archetypes are by no means, um, by no means, Feudal, yeah, no means feudal and by no means completely oppressive. Mm. Oh They're, no, I definitely <laughs> agree. I'm just wondering if it's possible to exist outside of that. Like, I feel like that's definitely one framework. And I think kind of going off what this guy was saying about the religious aspect of it, like is it maybe the religious or spiritual aspect that keeps us outside, of, like that elevates us or lifts us outside of that? tract of thinking this thing and kind of recognizing all the things that you're saying, like recognizing that it's a two-way street and then this is opening up avenues, but then that just kind of, it can supersede or like transcend that. Maybe if we understand these archetypes through, um, through with, within a sense of ethics, I think, and like if we start to network them from history, like not just look back and trace, you know, and trace for burden, but if we start to network them throughout history in terms of um, an ethical frame, you know, or the lack of ethical frame and start to charge them with ethical intention and, and you know, open the two-way gaze, then, yeah, then I don't think, I mean, I think there's a lot of actual currency and cachet that, that you know, the slave descendants have created. We're the most popular, powerful culture, you know, in the world. So in so many ways, those archetypes have also sort of sorted us into, a, into a, an, an ether of symbol, symbology or something, or symbol. I don't know, but it's right. Okay, well, Mandy, wait, oh, oh wait, did you have? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in. Yeah, jump in there, and then Mandy has. Um, this conversation makes me think about um, the place that like gender plays in all of this, um, and as, as in the reality that um, our gender is some place, sometimes a, a place where we name like what our body is and and the gender roles and things that it performs. I'm curious about um, queer theory and the reality of uh, being gender free or a non-binary person in the ways that it can, even for f folks that aren't queer or whatever, just like at large as a place of possibility to um, kind of like get out of, you know, you know what I'm saying, get in? Okay, cool, cool, so I was just throwing that out there. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, no, we'll, yeah. For sure. No, we'll definitely get, no. Well, there's like um, we only wanted two, so y'all should move on. No, no, no. I mean, like, yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I think, we, yeah, we're gonna go deeper in it. But An Angela Davis actually has a really great quote about if we can break down the the binary, we can like, we can fight anything. Right. And essentially, yeah, it, 
that is the core of, I mean, that's a very important point to bring up. Um, totally. Yeah. I would say symbolically, though, that all of these figures operate in masculine, feminine, and other space. So I don't think, I don't think any of these actual figures are, because reproduction has been taken out as a possibility of life-giving, um, with partus sequitur ventrum, there's a there's also like a queer a queering of like black reproduction period happening from that point on. So I don't think that these I think these figures are exactly policing in the vein of being femme. You know, their feminization, their projection into especially a space of reproduction, of actual physical reproduction, sexual reproduction, is um, really necessary, I think, to understand them, how they ethically, how they, how they end up becoming policing forces, you know? Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Candace. Thank you guys for your questions. Let's give Candace a, a hand. Um, all right, we've got more to go. So much to think about. Um, all right, we have Mandy. Mandy Harrison. I'm ready. You ready? Yeah. All right. Okay. So I want to um, answer that question. Should we sit, sit on the floor? I don't mean to displace anybody, but if you insist. I'm sorry, Candace. Um, so the question, the last question, um, informs my being. And um, I think like when we think about binaries, one of the things that I think about as far as like a binary is exactly that. Like um, that question in of itself sets up a binary. Do we acknowledge these tropes or like how much acknowledgement of the tropes becomes, you know, whatever we feel we need to perform? And then also like, um, layered with that, interacting with that, is that like every day I walk outside with a body that I'm responsible for, um, you know, feeding, clothing, um, adorning, um, and that while I very much like want hunger for that liberation, I think, especially like uh, for folks like us, like I think we're both kind of history nerds. So like the, um, I think it's like, uh, you just research the enemy, you see through the enemy's eyes. It's not, I think it's not necessarily, um, like I hear, I like what you're saying about there are also aspirational elements, like, um, because it's both, right? The mammy has venerable qualities. Excuse me, sorry, did I mischaracterize? I wouldn't say aspirational. Yeah, that there, but that there are like qualities that are viable. No, I guess I'm saying in being in being caught in the binary, in being created by the binary, they've produced space that's been non-death space. I don't know how to say that with yeah. less. Yeah, survival um, space. Yeah, they've, they've produced survival space yeah. and structures of survival have been produced. So I'm saying something different then. Thank you for clarifying. I'm saying um, that like a lot of these archetypes, like or like a quality, for instance, like um, something like you know, big lips, right? Let's take that. Like in of themselves, 
It's like, what's wrong with big lips, right? When you really think about it. But because of the narrative that we've been told about big lips, like, you know, big nigga lips, you know, like all of the characterization of how that makes us, like these gross African, you know, West African descendants, that that's supposed to be an indicator of like some uh, lesserness, that that's a story that's been told about that quality, but the quality in of itself is desirable, in my opinion. I like big lips. So um, I think what I aspire to do online is to kind of buzz in both, to um, continuously um, deconstruct and also reconstruct. And like I see them as uh, partnering and um, I, li I like to be conscious. I think that there are thinkers who prefer to start from a different place, but I like the de deconstruction of history. I think the reason I like the deconstruction of history is because um, I grew up, my dad was a history major. I felt like he knew everything. And um, I feel like knowing a lot of stories about how things have been help us identify automaticity that we work with. So like, um, you know, knowing how my black body has moved through space in the past helps me understand why I receive a certain reaction. Um, and sometimes that's not conscious by the person who's reacting to me. Um, I'll give a specific example. So um, let's say I am a teacher um, and I'm um, taking care of children. And I realized, this is a positive example, right? Like lots of parents, I felt, when I was a teacher, I felt like, oh, y'all shouldn't trust me. Like, I'm so young. I, I smoke weed every night. Like, <laughs> like, there's weed on your kid's paper right now. Um, <laughs> but like parents really trusted me, right? So like, I was like, huh, what's that about? And by knowing that because I am like dark skinned, I think because of my hips too. Like people just assume I'm gonna give good care to children. Um, sometimes you can use that to your benefit. Sometimes the reaction or the thing you have to handle or you know work through is a little bit more annoying. Um, so this all gets me to when I went on Instagram for the first the first time back in 2013 maybe. Um, previously my handle was Coco Empress <laughs> Mandy. And um, <laughs> you can call me that if you'd like still. And uh, then as I as I you know kind of acclimated to the network um, and I will say about acclimating to networks, I've learned a lot of rules about how to gain social capital based on, um, mostly based on educational environments that I've spent a lot of time in. And um, I realized on, on Instagram, but like also generally in the internet, there's like, there were some rules, some unwritten rules um, that I would say very closely map on to um, some of the uh, archetypes that Candace spoke of earlier. So I was pissed off because, like, you know, I'm, I like to say a lot of shit, but I also like to get fucked. So therein 
there is a conflict between the Sapphire and the Jezebel, right? So <laughs> I, I couldn't, I really like, was kind of like, how am I gonna place myself here? Like how, what hashtag would I even use? Like hashtag foresee. Um, what I did not foresee at the time <laughs> was um, I think how despite my efforts to locate myself within like uh, an expression or community of black femininity, um, how like it all would skew algorithmically to something that I was not. Um, the first time I realized there was a problem with me in Instagram space was um, I was like searching natural hairstyles, but like, you know, I was trying to find somebody who had hair like me. I'm not gonna tell you what type of hair because <laughs> it's not that conference. Um, but what I did notice is that like I would, I would put in my little types and my little hashtags to try to see people who look like me. And I would like just constantly get pushed towards this like looser hair texture. And I was curious about um, why that happens. Why that happens? Turn me up. Thank you. Hello. Okay. Um, I was curious about why that happens, and I thought it was like a major problem, right? Because I can see what's happening, right? Like I'm seeing that, like, oh, I'm looking, I'm looking for belongingness and celebration, but what I'm get getting is like um, mixed aspirational advertising. Okay. Cool. So um, I, cre I renamed myself. I was like, okay, so I don't even know how I would operate here, so I'm just gonna state it. Like, let's, let's say for shits and giggles, I'm the ideal black female. So then I changed my handle. I still don't know what the fuck that means. But it's like, uh, it's a thing about like deconstruction and reconstruction, right? Like I'm, I'm just trying to do both of them at one time. So um, I started to like really think about Instagram um, in a historical way and looked at kind of like different elements of the history of Instagram. So like to start some like major points, one point would be that like um, when it was first released in 2010, I think, um, it was only iOS, right? So like to be on Instagram, you had to be, you had to have money because you had to have an iPhone. So it wasn't until two years later that it became available on Android. So then it like widens the, you know, usage. Um, in that same year, they changed the terms. And when they changed the terms, they basically made it so that Instagram owns everything that you create, right? So in um, opening the scope of who can use it, right? And you really are opening like a, a financial scope here. Um, you're also then saying like, but it's per our ownership of your image. That's, we'll let you play if we can own you. Um, and uh, another thing, well, I'll just go through these. So um, authenticity of how we like present ourselves when we know that we're being sold and bought. Um, what are we like advertising, like whether that's personal. Like I did this um, course when I was studying to be like an educator. And one of the things you do is you listen to um, a conversation between two people. And you basically just code every single thing that somebody's saying. It 
makes me such a fucking asshole now. I'm just, I'd just be in the matrix. Like, that was an informational statement towards what end. Um, but, you know, when you look at an Instagram image, like, you can kind of analyze the image. Okay, so what's being shown here? What's the gesture? What is that derivative of? Um, what, are, what What's trying to be communicated here? You can really, like, analyze each post almost as though it is, you know, a work that you would analyze in art history, right? Um, so censorship is another issue, right? There's the question of um, whose body whose body is policed and for what. Um, I started thinking about algorithmic justice, uh, specifically that idea of like, you know, anybody can hashtag 4C, right? Anybody with any hair type can hashtag 4C. And when we go into that 4C list, right, when we're looking for something that we identify with, you know, um, a lot of us operate with internalized racism. So a lot of us will look for something, but we prefer a different thing. Um, there's an issue of like transparency and propriety with the algorithm. Instagram doesn't tell us what their algorithm is. Um, and you know that there is either con uh, content moderation or that there is um, AI in order to type something right. Because, okay, so now if you go onto your Instagram and um, you go into your explore, right, you have tabs and it's like style, beauty, skincare. So either somebody is categorizing those all or you have AI that's saying what it is. And it's like both of those are completely possible. We do know that like um, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. No, sorry, I got that, I got that wrong. But whatever their um, parent company is, they have the technology to be able to look at an image and say like blue sky, two people. Right, so like um, if selfies are like the most, um, are like a high currency, right? You, ver you viably could have the app just looking for every single selfie. And you can even tell that just by like the data that your camera is feeding the app, right? Front facing camera picture, it's a selfie. So we're gonna ping this to a higher level, right? So like then what is the algorithm prioritizing? Some sort of, I don't know, narcissism maybe. You can read into to whatever um, value you want to. Um, or it's like, this is kind of like a, you know, I would say like the selfie is very much like Instagram, um, kind of like a calling card of Instagram. So like it feeds back on itself, right? Like if we if we make selfies hot, people are going to think Instagram is hot because people see selfies on Instagram. Um, Obviously, there's the issue of digital divides, right? Do you have an, an iPhone? Um, and then there's also like the issue of like what kind of pixels are you working with? Because like just like you might see somebody out on the street, you're like, that's Fuji, that's not real. <laughs> y'all be looking at people's, y'all be looking at pixels. <laughs> yeah, y'all shady. That's I know true. you. <laughs> um, we need a resolution. <laughs> um, an <laughs> Another thing about Instagram is um, all of the like new features are released on the English versions of the app first. So anything like you know videos, IGTV, this is all something that we got first, just by nature of being in the United States of America. Um, so you have a, like a nationalistic privilege. Um, and so basically, if you speak English, you have like a head start on how to learn all of 
these new features. And new features, obviously, it's in Instagram's interest, right, to push up new features, to, uh, to like, feature their new technology, right? Um, so that gets into privilege. Obviously, addiction is an issue. White supremacy is an issue. I don't even know why I put that there. I need to. <laughs> Guys, also, it has to do with white supremacy. Uh, <laughs> so I think just even in like the structure and the history of Instagram, we can see how like when you mix it with our internalized racism. And has anybody in here ever took the, um, it's this automatic bias test, and you go online, and you just do of course you have, right? You're just, you're just like, is this person bad, good, bad, good? Um, I think that Instagram is like today our like automatic bias test, right? It's like double tap, double tap. We're almost not conscious, right? It's just like we're looking for indicators of quality or desirability or sexiness or marketability or sellability. Um, and then we either approve those as belonging or worthy of our attention um, or not. Um, and I'm not saying all y'all, but I'm saying it's, it becomes automatic. Sometimes we don't think about it. Um, so I created this uh, kind of like an internet persona and also um, a movement. I do that when I'm annoyed. So um, the, the movement is brown up your feed. And the idea behind that is um, it's not really just about brownness. It's about a very specific thing. Um, the idea behind brown up your feed is that in our media culture, um, those who are celebrated as deserving of attention or desire uh, tend to be those who have some sort of phenotypic white indicators. What I mean by that is uh, that black women in the media are preferred if it looks like they have a white parent. Um, and so um, when I saw that on Instagram, I was like, okay, so what's the opposite of this? Like, yeah, like Central West Africans, um, a, a notion that I'm kind of working with as like slaveability, right? Like the likelihood that I would have been a field slave does that, um, how does that like reflect onto my belongingness in media? I'm checking for understanding. I'm gonna keep going and then I'll circle back if there's still furrowed brows. Um, <laughs> So um, some of the concepts that I'm trying to work with are democratize access, right? So um, one of the things that I am going to try to do when I brand on my feed is, um, let's say, you know, somebody doesn't have access to an iPhone, right? And I see, I'm, I'm clocking their pixels. Like, I'm just going to pause. I'm just going to pause. Be like, what about this do I not like? Like, it's, I don't like that they don't have money. Oh. <laughs> but I'm like, pause. <laughs> I'm gonna work with your pixel count. Um, meritocracy, I like, I like the idea that Instagram is like this place where everyone can participate and post pictures and it's really just about the quality of the image and, and the caption content. Um, I like that idea. Alas, internalized racism. And, uh, and also the way that they've built the app. Like, let's not ignore the bias of the, of the platform itself. It was created and engineered by um, 
white people. Um, I like that in Instagram we have a choice. Like you don't have to like you don't have to like everything you like. Like I be liking pictures that white people post, but I don't need to give it a vote. You have a choice. Um, there's like a concept of choice, and then there's a real choice. Like so, um, have you guys searched in your Instagram recently? Um, if you search in your Instagram now, like, let's say um, I want to find Alima. Actually, Alima is like my number one suggested. <laughs> so that's not relevant. But like, uh, I'll enter a few letters of somebody's handle, right? And what I'm actually getting now is not just people who I follow, but I'm getting people who have those letters, right? Just popular. Um, so there's like increasing suggestivity on the app. It's like sneaking in. And just last week, they also added another suggestions area. Did you guys see that? Yeah, it's like, I don't fuck with your suggestions. Alas. Um, so I like the idea of choice, but I, I am mindful of it being seductive as like a concept that I have choice. So like I'm doing everything I want on Instagram, but I'm not doing everything I really want on Instagram. There are certain options that are being availed to me, certain pathways, um, and I'm choosing among those unless I'm really working outside of them. Um, Brown Up Your Feed aims to discuss and ch challenge white supremacy. <laughs> Again, duh. Barriers to access. Um, so what I like about Instagram also is that like uh, I would not be where I am today without Instagram. And so, um, you know, I didn't go to like an art school. So for somebody like me who's just like, yo, like I got some images and I got some thoughts about those images it's really helpful and there are lots of people who have broken in just by using the app. So I, I do like it for that reason. Um, although, you know, obviously um, I do have privileges as I move in the world and as I sh create and share media. Um, there's this, there's another, this is like another one that's kind of like I would like to move on it, and then I also see it being kind of like one of these false seductors, uh, the benevolence of technology. Like I think some people are like, new technology is great. We should use social media. That's what the kids are doing. True. Um, but technology is not necessarily benevolent, and we have to activate benevolence or consciousness. Um, I like that it's uh, it's... I think about my work a lot as like not the most important part of what I'm trying to get done. Um, but I like that it allows me to fight for some sort of, um, the justice that I'm fighting for is like that read, that really quick scroll read of like, what are you worth? So um, that's one way that I fight for racial justice. Um, what I'm thinking about when I think about that is like, you know, this is crass, but like if you um, like, you know, if I like get, put on a hot outfit, take a picture, it manages to, you know, whatever, get to the explore page. I'm pretty sure I'm banned from that, but let's say it does. And, you know, some dude from Kentucky is really into it. Like, does that mean that when I'm driving, I'm less likely to get pulled over and killed? I don't know, but like I think that the introduction, as Candace mentioned, the introduction that I like could be um, a worthy fuckhole could potentially save my life. Um, 
not to be grim. <laughs> um, and I like, <laughs> I like the idea that we can um, innovate alongside the technology that um, that we are like making a new language. So I'm, this is kind of like a segue into your bit, which is like memes. Black people run memes. That's, um, hello, hello. That's, that's accurate. Right? Yeah. A voice, a voice from above says, yes. Um, so this is one of my favorite black memes. The floor is European beauty standards. Um, it speaks for itself, really. Part of my practice is to take a meme and then like, kind of get into like, what the meat of the meme is. The memed. <laughs> you knew it was coming. Um, and then try to deconstruct that in a more like, thoughtful and expounded way. But I love the meme because it's, like, uh, it's a Trojan horse. It's like I've triggered something that you think is kind of like hee hee ha ha. Let me get in that ass. <laughs> this is an original meme that I made. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about like, um, I saw this picture, it made me want to vomit. It made me want to vomit because I don't know why she hangs out with her after she did this. Um, she actually, she actually made that meme, Amanda? I made this meme. No, the, the second one. What do you... This is, okay, so this is one of, like, Serena's competitors. Um, and it's also her, one of her good friends, Caroline Wozniacki or something. And, um... This picture was like something I saw on a tablet. It's like, Serena and Caroline are such great friends. And the meme that was going around was me and the white women men choose over me. Um, and so I just think a lot about like, um, with, especially with like the, the image um, and the currency of our image, whether it is likable, whether it is desirable, is also whether it is commodifiable, right? So yes, I am selling ass, but I have a right to sell my ass. Um, and I have a right to make good money off of it. Um, and so like just, I put this like series, cause like these women all have like uh, watch, watch campaigns. They're just like these far inferior athletes who all have better campaigns than Serena, right? So at the end of the day, it's not about what she can do. It's about media viability and that hurts the pocket. Now obviously Serena's not concerned about that check, but it's just an examination of like what is uh, what is paid. This is another meme that I made, including myself. <laughs> this dude, this dude, I don't even know his name. <laughs> he was People's Sexiest Man of the Year. <laughs> Blake Blake Shelton. Blake Shelton. He was the sexiest man of the year. And he has a really dope contract on The Voice where he just says like, oh yes, that was, that was great, you be on my team. And that's it, and he's, he's not entertaining. Um, so I reappropriated and queered the meme. Um, these are the things I aspire to do when I brown up my feet. I spoke a little bit about them. This is kind of like the recreation, right? Like, so you have the deconstruction. This is what I try to reconstruct with. 
So um, if you guys want to know more about the project, you can um, follow the hashtag Brown Up Your Feed. You can follow my account at Ideal Black Female, or you can ask me questions here. Um, you know. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Amanda. Really quick. Woo! Um, really quick, you guys. Can we give Camilla a round of applause for this beautiful spread? This is Cam Camilla. You could follow her at Camilla Creates. She did this. She made that. And can we give Nona a hand too? She's our house, Obachan. That means mom in Japanese. She's hiding there in the overalls. She's very sick, but she has been a sister since day one and helped facilitate this. And she's always here cleaning and everything. But thank you, Camilla, for, Camilla, for doing that, really. It was so beautiful. So, how about this? Um, do you, do you want to, yeah, let's, let's take a break. How about we do like 10 minutes? Five minutes, and then we'll get into Ruth's presentation. You guys can go use the bathroom. It's been it's just a lot. It's a lot. So go smoke some weed, drink some water, and then, yeah, we'll meet up. Don't link me. Don't hit me when you hear this and tell me your favorite song. Don't tell me how you knew it would be like this all along. I know the truth is you won't love me until I'm gone. And even then the thing that comes after is moving on. I can't even capture the feeling I had at first. Meeting all my heroes like seeing how magic... Hey, so if you don't know, Sisters is a space for women of color to be heard. And I just out of for real respect, I love y'all, but I just, we need a little, we need a little order here. Um, because we have Ruth all the way out here from Berkeley, California that has been sitting on this presentation, this hot fire presentation that she's been working on. Um, also, um, yeah, just so you know, the reason why we're in this space today is because of um, Naval's assemblies, um, assemblies programming. So we're one of, how many assemblies? Is it like 12? Yeah, that's what this is, it's assemblies, yeah. Yeah, we got like really, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's what this is. This is part of assemblies. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. So anyways, um, <laughs> um, yeah, so because of that, because of your votes, we are able to have uh, four, four more dates in this space. Um, our next date will be um, April 15th, and it's gonna be Ask a Lawyer with Jordy Cohen, and I'm gonna have some malleable contracts for you guys. And we can, um, it's gonna be a free, he's volunteering his time, um, his legal advice and space, so you can ask any questions that, that you want. Um, and it's on the house with some legal counsel. So, all right, here we go. Ruth. Ruth! <laughs> Let's give Ruth a, Ruth is here. Um, Hi. I'm gonna get out of your way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so this we're is our final presentation. Yeah, and then we're going to go into conversation with everyone who is yeah. up here from above. Yes. I mean, from before. Yeah, yeah. Then, and after Ruth is finished, can all of our conversationalists, you guys can Return. make yourselves back comfortable up there. Thank you. All right, here we go. All right, so I'm just going to get into the memes. Um, so my, my interest as a writer and just as a consumer is someone who, uh, I, li I like cultural products and the products that culture, so it can be from food, from music, from art, photography, I see them as cultural products and memes are cultural products in that way. Um, but what I like about memes most is their power. I know this is hella, f I don't know why I'm trying to talk over funny memes, that's a bad idea. Um, but. 
what I like most about memes is their power to sort of subvert some of our expectations the way Mandy talked about and um, insert messaging along with visuals that like we're very used to or we're very like um, comforted by and then insert maybe a message that's like less comfortable than than the image might suggest um, early on in like meme at the height of meme making or at the beginning of meme making a lot of black bodies were used to make memes um, that were either receiving trauma or had witnessed trauma the case of um, a lot of like news reports of black people having witnessed something that would be sort of something that went viral early on but as black folks sort of spent more time on the internet and, and social digital spaces, I feel like we figured out how to subvert white media to make it a sim like to make it ours, to make it not ours, but to use it to express ourselves and to find ourselves in products that were not meant for us, maybe. Um, along with a platform that maybe wasn't even meant for us. So I think that one's a good example. Because I don't think Game of Thrones was written with black people in mind. Um, yeah, and, I, and I, I try as hard as I can to source memes, although the creation, like, it's really hard to do that as, a, as a, someone who likes to archive memes, but if I can find the person who started a meme or who kind of, uh, yeah, created the concept or who just created a meme or even retweeted it, I try to, like, just note that down. And it might mean nothing, it might mean something, I don't know. Um, so one way I did this is for, um, I did a meme gallery a couple of years ago in 2016, and I did, because it's so hard to track all the memes, I mean, there's like millions that go on, right? So I, I try to take an anthological sort of approach to archiving memes, so I'm not concerned about archiving every single one of them, but I'm trying to like understand the story they're trying to tell, or sort of like the reach um, that the message takes on. So this one is, that's actually the first ever Arthur Fist meme. And then from that, you go on to sort of what it becomes and the kind of messages that, that get um, input, which is like a lot of fun and a lot of work to do. Another way is to, this is from the same project, where I created a conceptual keyboard. And this is before Jiffy and other sort of GIF meme um, keyboards were like being inputted into our own like feeds. Like when you text someone, you can text them a GIF now. And this is like kind of predates that. But this is about the time that I understood memes as language. They're vernacular, and more specifically, they're black vernacular. So they're units of this digital vernacular that we use to communicate with each other and with people who understand what we're talking about, or people who kind of speak that same language as us. So um, yeah, their power is really undeniable, because language is very powerful. Um, this one's just for fun. I threw it in. I don't know how we're feeling about Joanne. but. Um, I based this on like, I don't know, famous famous people who get their stamps. I thought this was an interesting way to kind of catalog Joanne's rise at that time. And I always fantasize about sending my rent checks using one of these, <laughs> but I haven't done it yet. Um, other people who do interesting archival work, I also try to keep in touch or like keep, I actually did manage to keep in touch with him, but just follow their work. So Aleem Smith is a painter. Um, out of the DMV area, and yeah, he, he paints these sort of surrealist paintings of figures that we know from our, our inter internet digital life, 
And I really like the idea of this being a meme archive in a way, too. Um, other people that he paints are like just important black figures from movies and films and, I mean, uh, films and music and, yeah. So we kind of know all these now, too, isn't, no matter how distorted they get. And memes only survive when they get distorted. You can't have the same meme just stay the same. Like, it needs to constantly change and be interpreted by other people um, for it to circulate and to continue living. Um, throughout this distortion, though, an important... <laughs> so one of the most common ways that memes get distorted is... Um, people who are sharing Twitter or other sort of black digital spaces with black folks using that proximity to perform blackness or to um, appropriate it into, into their own use. So it might be digital blackface, which is known at, which is a performance of blackness by pretending to be black online, um, or black fishing, which is sort of like angling for blackness and angling for that proximity and whatever you can get out of it. Um, so the digital space is really rife with stuff like this, like because there's not a lot of accountability behind the screen. So you can kind of posture and be whoever you want to be. And sometimes people want to be black. <laughs> but this is something that's common in all other sectors, right? It's not just common to memes, as and black people really drive meme culture, and they drove music culture too, and that this, this was a common practice in, in pop music in America. So. It's not anything new. Um, this is a really good essay about just memes, if you want to look it up, Arya Dean's Poor Meme, Rich Meme. Um, and she said, when we say that the internet extends and exacerbates the same old offline relations, we mean it. So just because a meme exists um, as like an art product or as a cultural product that interests me, it doesn't mean that it's inherently virtuous. Like it doesn't have, um, it's not free of the systems that are oppressive in our real world. world. Like the internet is not um, a meritocracy. It's not a a paradise of any sort. It kind of reflects all our biases, and those systems can be just as present on the internet as they are in our lives every day. Oh, I forgot I said that. Well, yeah, there. Um, another interest area of mine when we're talking about memes is surveillance. So as black people are talking to each other or other folks, or other marginalized folks are using online spaces to affirm each other or to be more visible, to be in conversation about topics that are relevant to them, they're under the surveillance of the state and in a way that they were never before because everything is recorded. Um, the Library of Congress archives every meme. And there are sites like Know Your Meme and Reddit that catalog memes. Um, and all that work, including the Library of Congress, is done with the white gaze. Like, what is attractive to them or what is worth highlighting and how they're explaining it and who they're explaining it to is, has nothing to do with black people or other people who are marginalized who use memes and the digital space to sort of like gain some sense of safety, some sen sense of togetherness. Um, so that's something that I think about quite a bit. What's the last one? Oh, that's it. There we go. Yeah. Thank Do you. what again? I know, it's kind of short. 
Ruth, can we, um, I wanted to pull up that qu your um, quote My from quote? Afro Future Fair. Uh, okay, I tried to create all new stuff, so I didn't, I didn't have that in. Do you want me to pull it up right yeah, now? Yeah, can you pull it up? Okay. I think it's very... Let me see where I can find it. I know, it's okay. <laughs> I have nothing. There's no shame. There's no shame. It's on my website somewhere. Um, I'll take questions. Just yeah, so does anybody quiet. have any, any, yeah, let me make up. We'll do you and then. You're after, but she's gonna I just have a, a really quick recall question about something that you were saying. You were naming things and I didn't uh. catch it. Um, you said digital blackface and something or something. Blackfishing. Black Thank you. And can you say pH? Thank you. And can you redefine that for me, please? Black fishing? Um, I think, to me, I see it as like angling for blackness without being black entirely. So maybe you have modified your body digitally to appear darker. Maybe you are, your whole internet personality or persona is really reliant on uh, black aesthetics maybe from your hair to the way you might talk, to the way you might, yeah, just present your body. Quick question. I know that this is somewhat for the birds, but um, when you say black modification, when we're talking about people modificating their bodies, period, yeah. um, what is, I don't know, some of your thoughts about black modification and like kind of like the essence of it and or like the sacredness or um, the reverence that should be had for it in sense of like trying to emulate blackness um, versus like modifying your body from another reason. Like why should yeah, it be Yeah, like positive, like yeah, being body positive towards modification. Um, Hmm, I don't know, that's above my pay grade. Let me think. I think, um, I don't know. I think, I think intention matters somewhat and history matters, right? So there's certain bodies that can take advantage of black aesthetics and not get punished for it, not get killed for it, not get profiled for it. So uh, there's a lot of people who are modifying their bodies to become themselves. And then there's a lot of people who are modifying their bodies not to do that. I think that's an important distinct, like I don't want to group those two things together at all. Right, so I'm sorry to extend my question further, um, but when like your response further clarified my question, like we have, I don't remember her name, but it's a white woman who was a part of the NCCA. Dolezal. Thank you, who modified her body to be black and yeah. because maybe she thought she was black her whole time. Like the whole, her whole life she felt she was black. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't know. I can't talk about Rachel. I don't know her. I don't see her. Where is she? No, I don't. I really, I didn't see the documentary either. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's a lot of advantage to having uh, proximity to, to blackness, right? And the right, and the right angle and, and the right kind of um, distance. Um, and that's something that you know, white folks can take advantage of. And for black folks too, there's a certain um, privilege to having proximity to whiteness. That's just the relationship both ways that has kind of swung um, That's that in the history of America. That's been a constant sort of angling yourself close enough to take advantage of it. 
on both sides. Not to say it's equal, meaning like that power structure will always be informed by white supremacy, but yeah. Okay. I don't know what Rachel was thinking. Yeah. I mean, does Rachel know? Okay, so Whitney, you're, and then we're gonna come back here. I don't think this mic, oh, is it on? Okay. I just wanted to ask what your, your favorite meme is, and, and then also maybe like, secondly, this is secondly, uh, do you think that there's a, a meme that's, I know you said that none of them are uh, necessarily innately virtuous. Yeah, do yeah. Do you think that there's one that's really like, I think the best thing about memes are like essentially any of them can be for the culture, right? So they can absorb having heard what Candace said and what Mandy has said and all those things that kind of inform our aesthetics and how we, um, how our bodies are seen and how we can present ourselves. I think there's ways to sort of subvert that and play on that. Um, that's. I don't know if there's one that's like, this one's the one. Like, um, yeah. That's, what is the one on for me? I should have thought about this before I came here. But uh, lately, I just like the you, like nothing, and then me. Because it really tells me that people want to be heard, like not to be like serious about it. But I think a lot of people have something to say and they don't really care what you have to say. So it's an interesting way to kind of phrase a, a desire to just speak no matter what you're being asked without being asked a question, you're answering it. And, and yeah, that's, it's, it's been a mainstay for a couple of months now and it's been fun to watch sort of what people have to say. I think memes have gotten really simple, too, um, with not using any imagery besides just like brackets or just words. That are, and then they go through periods where like there's heavy, heavy distortion, so images that are like hyper-pixelated. Um, so it's been, it's, to me, it's fun. Oh, one that I like, actually, and I thought about putting it on here, but I didn't know if it was that kind of talk, was, um, I'm not going to put it. Okay. <laughs> Um, in the meantime, did, did, should we stay on this? So we have a, a young lady with a. Hello. Hello. Okay, that sounds a bit better. Um, we have a question in the back. Can she ask it, or should we wait till after you show this? Oh wait. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. This I'll is wait. overco. Oh wait. Okay. Well, okay. Cool. And then we have Candice. I can tell you why I like this meme. I can tell you why I like this meme. Because I don't know if you guys did, there was like a post-op post and whatever, like editorial piece in the New York Times about this man who um, couldn't date white women anymore because he felt like he wasn't woke if he was dating white women, he's black or uh, brown, he identifies as like black or brown. Anyways, I think there's gonna be a tide shift soon. Like I think, speaking of like virtue signaling, we didn't really talk about that much, but um, the ways that people can signal that they are good or inherently virtuous or they're woke is by maybe like their social relationships and romantic ones. And I think, uh, I don't know, I just think this year, 
I think black women are gonna be used in this way. Like I just have a feeling and the memes kind of predict this kind of stuff. Like I'm seeing a lot more things that kind of like glorify white men and their attractiveness in this and black femme spaces as a joke, but also kind of like as a serious thing. And so I'm curious to see what happens because I do think memes predict stuff. Like I think they're kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I think that's one of the fun parts about archiving them is kind of I see what conversations people are having as a joke first, and then maybe it's not a joke anymore. Uh, okay, so Candace has a... Um, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I skipped. Okay. I'm so sorry. I can turn yeah. this off if it's really... It's, I know it's a lot to handle. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Wait, so me, so can I ask or no? Okay, oh yeah. Okay. <clears throat> uh, uh, thank you for your information on the memes. I, I, I love memes, man. I share them all the time. And one time I almost shared a meme that I pretty, it was like something about black people. I, I for sure thought it was written by a white person. So, yeah. I, so I scratched out the nigga part on it. And I'm right. not a person who feels iffy about that. Right. But I found myself censoring it like, right. oh, I suspect white people are making black memes. <laughs> and um, thank Thank you for validating me. But then that thing came out about Russians and how Russians are doing, yeah. like, impersonating. And part of me was kind of impressed. Like, dude, like, I'm almost sharing this. And I wonder, is this, like, is there potential? Because obviously there's a potential to understand black people to the level to make me think you're a black person right. and want to share it. Right. I'm just wondering what your thoughts on it. Because like, obviously this is fucked up. You know, it's kind no, of it's, yeah. it's digital black faces. I all. hear you, yeah. And but, I even with this meme, actually, I thought, I was like, I'm thinking this is funny, but what if what if some white bro wrote this? Exactly. Would I be sharing it? But it's I, funny. I thought about, yeah, having that word. Like, I, I wouldn't, like, I don't know. I wouldn't want to sort of play into, play into that. But what this meme meant to me was more distorting sort of this product that maybe wasn't made with black folks in mind and to using using this imagery to kind of speak about whatever is going on for you instead of them using your language to speak about, to sort of like give this image some proximity to blackness that would make it cooler or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I don't know, the internet is weird. Like I don't know if any of us will know like, oh, this person, this meme was definitely authored by um, and, and meme authorship and circulation doesn't really allow for that kind of tracking. So I, I think it's, you kind of like go into it and it's a wild space and you can judge it by case by case. But yeah, I feel those feelings and I don't, I don't ever land somewhere where I'm like, I'm super clear on it. For this one, I landed at a place where like, oh, I think this is a, a, a good example of how we participate in spaces. May it be the internet or Game of Thrones that, we, that were never designed for us, right? But I, I do hear you, like I have, I have those same thoughts and I don't always land somewhere. Well, I'm clear. just wondering if it's not sometimes like necessarily, if it's a potential for, not to sound hokey, unity maybe, like, because there's a, because there's always this disconnect of black people not being heard in our stories, but our stories have been understood in such a way that's so convincing, right. you know, that speaks to us that we want to share it too. I wonder if, like, that's a, maybe, like, a hokey futuristic, like, hey, you know, maybe we can understand each other more through memes. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, if you look at memes as language, right, which is a really useful way to look at them for me anyways, it's like there's white folks who can speak in black vernacular, 
does that mean they understand it still? Yeah, like, you know, so I think being fluent in that language, I'm not sure actually creates understanding or harmony. Like, I, I, would, I would resist the idea that um, someone who's white understanding a meme that was authored by a black person or was meant for black people makes us closer. I don't think that's true, because black folks have always served as sources of entertainment or um, sort of a, a freedom of performance for, for white people in America. That's always been the truth. So I don't imagine that that sort of memes will like have a radical shift in how yeah, black aesthetics or art is like better, like getting us closer to like a green book moment, you know? <laughs> Thank you for that, Ruth. Uh, Candace, you have a, you had a question, right? I guess this, is this, this, can, I don't know if the mic's working, but I guess I have a kind of a general question. Wait, hold on. Um, can we turn our mic up or, yeah? Yeah, I know, right? Turn the other um, I have a general question about, because it feels like you're talking about memes as like a, there's a Cecily Bowen thesis on, like on memes as a tool for disidentifying, like for disidentifying with like stereotypes of blackness. And, um, and I think that's really, yeah, that's like, there's this aspect of that that's really interesting, but I feel like um, it got really complicated for me with the hashtag and the memes around if slavery was a choice, like to get straight to some shit too, like in the way that the, right. you know what I mean? Like whatever kind of trend casting or like whatever kind of alchemy was happening, because it felt like there were for a minute, like a lot of, especially in the, in terms of like the, the, the difference between image and language, like it was like all these memes that were trying to disidentify with um, Kanye or with like, with a kind of structural racism with disidentify with white supremacy, but were using images that were literally of slaves or slave image, you know, like, so there was this really, like, for me, it was just very cloudy, you know, yeah. like what was, I was just wondering what you feel or what yeah. you think around the, the hashtag. Is this on? Uh, I remember that when, after Kanye's interview, right? He did like some TMZ. Um, yeah, I do. And, and I think it goes back to like Arya's quote and, and the truth of it, which is like memes might be funny and might catch on and might be very popular. It might be something that like lasts longer than um, this, the very short units of time that things usually last on the internet, but that doesn't make them good or true. And I think there's like ahistorical moments like that, that kind of you do have to remove yourself from like the history of the truth to participate in something like that in an active way, which is wild. I don't, I don't think memes are like a way to freedom. I think there's just a new, another language that evolves really fast that can help us express ourselves, that can help people also like, say things that are like really horrific. Like I didn't include any memes that offend me, but those are out there. Like, and they trend regularly and constantly. Um, so I don't think there, yeah, they, I don't think there's any virtue to, to the medium itself. I think it's more that it's just another tool and a, a vocabulary, like it's just, yeah, another sort of vernacular by which people express themselves. that vernacular, there's a lot of really good writing on this and I'm happy to share it, is, is black vernacular in many ways in the way that it kind of evokes um, call and response and the way that it evokes circulation and distortion and sort of a fugitive language in some, in some ways when it's used in those spaces. But even in those spaces and with all those things, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's like free of, of like horrific, ahistorical 
like disidentifying in that way is like kind of the Did worst. Did you find it ahistorical? In a sense, when you're like, if slavery is a choice, is it ahistorical? Oh, no, I mean, but like the meme responses, like what the memes looked like. I mean, I don't even, I can't, I feel like I can't talk about like that whole, that actual TMZ thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really, but like the memes generated from it, like I'm thinking about one that was like, or just all of them that with with the Ray um, Ving Rames in a field of cotton with a laptop, just like there was so many, or like um, yeah, there was like one. There were like these like black cowboys in suits dancing on the street. I mean, it was just there was so many like invocations of cotton fields, right. invocations of like like also mixing tech, you know, like where like the the cell phone in the cotton field, right, right, right. And they were like really contemporary. They were like very contemporary images where you could kind of see that like what was troubling for me. Was was that you could see that there was this track of like popular imaging of black people because I don't want to say black aesthetics, right? Yeah, like black yeah. aesthetics is like the stuff black people make about mm-hmm, the experience mm-hmm, and yeah. black popular culture is shit the white gaze produces and or yeah. qualifies as iconic. Yeah. But there was then you could see like this whole history of how so there were every generation has a has a roots, you know, we're remaking roots where like how many slave narratives are still so pop like how slave narratives are still so popular or have had this huge history of popularity yeah. into the tech age. And then and I don't know. And then the kind of memes were like identifying, but also dis- like a disidentifying, I think, with Kanye, but not really with the vestiges of slavery. So I just thought there was an interesting double speak or something yeah. going on. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't super look into the hashtag, but I know that I, two of the images you talked about, I remember floating, right. those floating around in my timeline. Yeah. I felt that way about Nigger Navy. Remember that? I was just thinking that, actually. That was the one that I was like, yeah. oh, we're yeah. really embracing this. That was your show? <laughs> Did you go high? <laughs> yeah. And that lasted a, overnight into, I think it was Yahoo News mistweeted something like Trump wants a, a bigger Navy, but they wanted, they, they said Nigger Navy instead. And so people hashtag Nigger Navy. Yeah, it was for a long time, and it was... Um, <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, so like, what would that look like? And I think Rihanna was in a movie when she was like a Navy SEAL, so that was like a lot of the imagery was was sourced from that film. I forget what it was called, but um, yeah, those moments are strange too, because I about when those moments happen, what I think most about is surveillance. Mm. I'm like, who's watching this, and how do they feel free to participate? Mm. And how do they feel free to interpret this moment, right? right? So, like, this might be something that you say that you feel inappropriate with your friends, like, oh, oh all right, like, you kind of push it. But, like, this is not your friends. This is, everyone sees this, right? And so sometimes these inside conversations cannot stay inside ever if they're on Twitter. It's just like, but, but what does that mean? I'm not sure what it means. Like. Yeah, I mean, both those hashtags probably produce like laughs for people, or maybe some sort of like release um, of participating in a way that's kind of playful. But I'm not sure that they—they they weren't my favorite memes. <laughs> yeah, personally speaking. Thank you. Um, Should we have everyone? Yeah, let's have everybody come yeah. back up here. Can we turn this uh, down a little bit. All right, let's go. Thank you, thank you, Ruth. That was fantastic. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Do you we can mind? also sit on the thing on the, now that we don't need the projector. Yeah, we can we can turn that off. Get comfortable. All right. So this is where the conversation starts. Hello. Yeah. 
Um, I wanted to ask, let's see, we got everybody up here. All right. So, is anybody, yeah, let me go over here. Oh, Christy, let me go here and then after we're gonna have Christy say something and we got, so this is a free for all, like this is a conversation, it's not a panel, I hate panels. They suck and they're weird, but this is a conversation, so here we go. So um, I don't know if it's too late, but I actually wanted, uh, Ruth, thank you, I wanted you to read the quote that um, she had you pull up because I couldn't read it because of the text um, warping or, or like the colors, but um, also just wanted to, I guess, hear everyone's thoughts on like meme culture and like how that's moving into academia and like how, like, I don't know personally, like, are people like actually profiting off of meme? Like, are there people like meme generate? Like, I'm sure there's like some teams of people that are like paid specifically to create memes and stuff like that. So like, what does that mean? And like, just kind of tying it together, like what are some theories about what those two work, things working together could mean? Okay, I'll, I'll read this real quick and we can all speak yeah. to who's profiting off memes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I will say one thing to note about that, a lot of meme makers and a lot of the faces that we see as like popular memes now, that was their intention. Like there's people who used to be on Vine who are on Instagram and who are sort of turning themselves into memes. Um, yeah, that's just something worth noting. Anyways, this was a few years old. Oh, it looks like my computer might have died oh. on us. Um, it's fine, oh, we don't need it. Do it. What are you gonna do? No, 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 I can just read it and then we can send it to the Sisters Invoices newsletters to sign up. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, to be black and viral is remarkable. To be infectious and influential in spaces never designed for black, queer, immigrant, low-income voices is a testament to the ingenuity of black folks. To turn the products of tech companies manned by mostly white and mostly wealthy men into communal safe spaces for learning, laughing, and affirmation is an amplification of how we create analogous spaces IRL. On a good day, these spaces stretch so far and wide that it's easy to forget that not all of the internet is black. And the robust American tradition of appropriation, the black creators of viral culture are unpaid, uncredited, and excluded from the leadership of tech companies. But black is not only viral, it is infinite, and it is plotting. Really quick, that was beautiful. That's one of my favorite quotes ever. Um, Christy has a question, can we? Can we, uh, here you go. Thanks. Um, I, I'm really interested in fonts and serifs, and I noticed that the, um, the memes that come from often like what we think of the left are sans serif, are often like in Helvetica or something that kind of descend from this modernist um, design aesthetic. And a lot of the memes from the alt-right have a lot of serifs, and all of the politicians' kind of campaigns from the right also have a lot of serifs. And so I'm wondering if um, you've seen in like you your... You gotta help us, what's a serif? Okay, so you know like Times New Roman? Like it has a lot of decoration. 
on the um, on the letter itself, whereas uh, Helvetica or Arial or any of the, the, the memes that, act, that Ruth actually showed have no serifs in them. And so there's a clear choice when picking a font of what aesthetic that you're going to rock with with the actual font that you choose. And a lot of the alt-right memes also tend to have a lot of serifs. They tend to be more in like the Times New Roman side of life, right? And that is, that I find that to be really interesting. And then people use comics like um, ironically, right? So um, I'm interested in like in your um, archiving of memes, if you have come across like oh like a, a trend also in the fonts because that sans serif is like a product of the Bauhaus and modernism, which is also like a, a project of white supremacy, like but now like from IKEA. And so the aesthetics alone are like kind of peppered I, even in the memes. Yeah, for sure. I, I cannot speak to like font trends. Although I love fonts, it's not something I've looked at for um, the memes themselves. Yeah, we love Candace. Um, yeah, so I teach, a, I teach a class on two-dimensional design, and kind of the premise of the class basically is that the, the colonial tradition turns into a lot of the modernist visual strategies. Right. So that, that happens, and then post-war, um, there's like a kind of relocation of like, I don't know, aesthetics and national currents, and national sure. wealth, like an idea of of art equaling some national wealth, which I think also ties into a lot of the social cachet of the, the black experience or the black aesthetic projects. But after modernity and throughout post-modernity, there is this, um, this kind of like redress through the Bauhaus, through Dada, through uh, the lecherous, through the situationist, into um, a kind of like early punk aesthetic. Right. So the left aligns with like, the left ends up aligning with, especially the Bauhaus modernist tradition because it's also a tradition that's like a denigrate, like a, de a, a denigrated uh, sort of school until it resurfaces through color field painting in the 60s, 70s as the left or whatever, some aesthetic of the left. That's hella boring though. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I'm so I'm a design professor and so I no, I started noticing it when like Hillary um went really hard with like sans serifs and all of her branding and um all of Trump stuff had a lot of serifs and and I noticed that that just like the fonts are also this kind of unspoken thing that are also being like peppered throughout so there's also there's also then maybe a kind of like a tradition then where we see like like in the 80s and in the digital that like the sans serif are aligned then more with a class like a high class or like a more like an aesthetic um, like a, like from modern modernity to now like a more highly valued or whatever a highly educated aesthetic regime or something. Yeah, and that like the serif fonts are sort of still in the Victorian more like emotional affective and so more populist choice. Um, for serifs or for fonts, but they're also like Android, like a lot more Android fonts are serif uh, based, a lot more like like Google, you know, the Google like Drive or whatever, they, they, the first five choices are always sans serif. There's like a kind of, yeah, there's a lot of like boldness like selections and stuff like that with that. So there's, there's um, yeah, there's a, there's a book called The Downcast Eyes that someone recommended to me, I forget the author's name. Uh, that's about modernist kind of scopic regimes. 
cool. Um, I just don't, oh, sorry. I just don't want to like feel like your question was disregarded at all. Yeah, like the, the conversation that you wanted to start. Yeah. Yeah, so, sorry, I didn't, yeah, I just wanted to like rein it back in. Um, yeah, so, this isn't. White people. That wasn't. <clears throat> just to circle back, whites. I think I think one of the one I kind of want to open this question up to everybody actually yeah. like in terms of to go back to the to the binary and the policing of the binary I feel like one of the biggest binaries that we're up against when we talk about capital and when we talk about image and representation is um, we us them like what what like this idea that I or or my non I my other or whatever are separate you know I feel like they will be are so especially conceptually entangled when we talk about image making that like yeah like individual niggas are making money on Instagram hella easy like way easier actually than ever before but it is controlled by and operating through like a kind of surveillance history of surveillance of the black body and the black image so who is us you know and who is them like is the question I think that we that that's the really policing question more than so many other binaries you know You, yeah, if you're online, you cannot not be surveilled. Yeah, that's just that's just how it goes. Black language is we speak to each other through means of restricted. Can you use yeah. the microphone? Oh. Did you have a question? Um, yes. Yeah, so something I've uh, noticed, um, I guess what you're saying with the memes and how we use it to communicate. Is it kind of like associated with like back in the day when people make like certain sounds or certain music to reach to other people? Um, I just kind of feel like sometimes like with promoting like blackness and how we should like uplift each other and stuff, is there a way to make it to where it's not tearing down another race as well? Because I feel like sometimes with promoting who we are, I feel like sometimes that negates like other people and how they feel. So what is something we can do to not only, you know, celebrate the different shades that we are without bringing someone else down? Um, how y'all doing? I personally, I don't like memes. And I, I said it earlier. I make memes. I don't like memes for reasons like you just said, because, uh, and please correct me, I don't want mis mean to miscategorize what you said, but it, it seemed like you said, you know, there are these moments where black people are making fun of other groups and other cultures. Well, we're existing on platforms and spaces where other cultures and other groups can even see what we're talking about in the first place, where previously th this was never in existence in history. So if there is this essence of, ooh, we're making fun of you, we make fun of each other. You know, We make fun of how we look. We haven't even come to terms with the idea that blackness online is not monolithic. You know, you have black bougie people, you have black poor people, you have uh, continental Africans who are now, because they live in the United States, they are black. Americans, you know, so there's this, we don't even know what it means to be black, you know, there's some, I see memes all the time that don't reference my experience, don't reference how I grew up, the people I grew up amongst, and 
I'm expected to like, oh my God, because the internet's moving so fast. I'm supposed to know what this means right now. Sometimes I Google stuff too. I feel like I'm just like the white man who's surveilling all of this. I'm like, yo, what, what are these, these Negroes talking about, you know? Because I don't, I don't know. And I don't, I, don't, I don't have no problem admitting I'm ignorant. Like, there's a lot of stuff I don't, I don't watch. Maybe I used to be really big into reality television, you know? So sometimes I catch stuff and sometimes I don't. But I also recognize that this, we're not existing in a vacuum, you know? Like, it shouldn't be how I said to Ruth previously. Is the, the biggest reason I have against memes is the, this idea that I believe my theory is that memes are going to be one of the primary uh, destructions, or they're going to lead to the demise of folk culture. You know, there's this idea of ownership that's so central into what memes are, but. Previously, in any example, at least in the black American experience, whether it was Uncle Remus, whether it's black vernacular, African American vernacular, English, however you want to call it, you know, there was no idea like, oh, my friend in 2013 posted the first, um, uh, what was the girl that did the, um, the fleek? You know, like they, uh, on fleek with the eyebrows? Everyone's like, we got to figure out how to. We gotta, we gotta figure out how to, how can we trace it to who made the first one, you know? And the only reason this, these things are now so important and who's seeing these things are now so important is because everything's being monetized. If there wasn't the financial element and the idea of the value of what these things are now, I'm laboring because of the eyes that are so present. There's a, there's a form, form of labor being exchanged here. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't care about what other people thought. I'm sorry, yeah, I just, I want to second that I feel like, again, this is an issue of representation and like these these like what these separating images end up articulating is never a space of the binary it's always a space of how they've been looking at us how they've been surveying us and the technologies that we've created to talk to each other under surveillance so like all of these archetypes too and all of the things that make the black body so titillating while it's dying while it's singing while it's fucking like I don't know, they, I, like, I pause in all that with the meme culture for sure because I definitely do see a system of, again, like reproductions of these like auctioning, free labor, forced labor, but also like a register in which we communicate with each other through archetypes that, that essentially always activate the white gaze, like are always activated by the white gaze, are always made iconic or like that we, we communicate on this, this level through images produced from the most fucked ether, you know? I mean, that's my resistance image-wise, but then also for real, the currency. Um, after Maceo, um, actually, Davia, well, no, go ahead, Maceo, and then Davia has something to say. Um, I think you both bring up a really good point, and for me, it's like this concept of what we think is sacred versus what we think should be public. So. I, I don't I actually wasn't sure why I was even asked to be here, but careful with your but um, oddly enough, I just came from a cryptocurrency uh, panel at a law school around uh, intellectual property, and what we're we're begging right to be accepted into this economy of cultural creation labor, right when we create these things and then also at the same time only want those products to be licensed to sort of members of the black diaspora, if, if you will, right? And so there's this like weird paradigm that we opt into 
like you said, like the white gaze, essentially, for, for desirability with but per, per respectability, with desirability, right, to be the best selling, you know, the highest price slave, if you will, and then, and then are, are resentful of the price because we know that no matter what that price is, it undervalues our humanity. So we, we're sort of like rushing to this objectification so that we can claim space as objects. And while doing so, we deny our subjectivity. And so I'm really interested in what we don't post online. I'm really interested in group chats. I'm really interested in like, like the conversations that we have offline about culture. And then as a community deciding what we choose or what individuals would like to publish and then create a sort of economic friction that allows people to engage with our culture on our terms. Yeah, thank you for that. That was, just, that was fab. Um, I think this is more of just a comment because I'm thinking about it particularly a lot this weekend and today around how, well, first of all, today or this weekend is Trans Day Visibility. And I don't celebrate this day because actually visibility to me means violence. Um, and particularly from black cis people, um, where I think a lot of black cis people adopt the white gaze of gender, and particularly as a visible black trans woman, the way that that plays out on a day-to-day -day basis, it's either, it's like super polarizing, right? Where it then becomes either that people are so taken by my presence because they don't expect me to exist in certain spaces. Because like, how could a black trans woman in their imagination be at the same coffee shop that I'm getting a coffee from right now? And it was actually this morning, I'm sitting there drinking my little matcha latte, doing emails, and a, a group of black cis folks are sitting in the corner, visibly talking about me, and it's those things that happen, right, when you know someone's talking about you, because they're doing the, no, no, no. And then each one is like taking their turn walking by, right? And I'm, I'm used to it at this point, but I think the point that I'm trying to make or the voice that I wanted to hear that I didn't really, I feel like we were kind of tiptoeing around is how black people even police ourselves, particularly around gender and the breaking of that binary where we're, re we're reinstituting that binary through visuals and then telling trans people that our visibility is what is going to save us when it's actually what is bringing us the most harm. And so I think it's really interesting to live in this paradigm and like this, paradoxical existence where I'm constantly having to evaluate for myself what my life choices are just stepping out the door, like what is that gonna produce for me on a day-to-day -day basis? Like if I don't put on makeup right now, or if I don't wear my hair this certain way, or whatever, whatever it may be, and it, it varies from person to person. It just, it's really interesting because I feel like I'm, I'm not actually able to be in spaces that are f for black people. Like even here today, like I will say tonight I feel uncomfortable because of the way that black, the black cis gaze has been put on me in this room, right? And like how does that really operate 
in terms of like safety. I don't know, that's just my comment. Does anyone feel that? No one else, did anyone feel that? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Davia. Um, what I want to ask, though, really quick, sorry, Candice, um, what can we do to make you feel more safe? Like, it's something that Miss um, Major, who is, if you don't know who Miss Major is, then get with the fucking program, first of all. Miss um, Major said, what we need instead of trans visibility is that we need cis people to visibly say that they support trans people, for cis people to visibly say that they are attracted to trans people, for cis people to visibly support trans people is the critical moment because what is happening to trans people is actually happening because cis people are unable to have that conversation within themselves, where a cis person is having a trouble even being able to say that they're attracted to a, a, a trans person. And that's what my experience at the coffee shop was. But I knew that those people were taken by my presence, yet they made me feel uncomfortable because they were uncomfortable with the fact that they were attracted to a trans person. And it goes back to our history that trans people were actually the leaders of black societies and many societies across the world before colonization. And what the colonizers did is they took our deities, our, our or witch doctors, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, they took that image and inverted it and made it the lowest rung of the society, right? So then, what was the center? Because for and many, many, many non-colonial cultures, trans people were the um, spiritual leaders, right? And so if you take that figure and you make it the worst possible thing, right? Because we can tap like that between the goddess and if you're talking about those images, right? I was thinking for myself, what are the images? It's either that I'm a goddess or that I'm a black trans hooker who just got out of jail or whatever it is. Like the worst, and like that is reflected in our current cultural imagery of trans people, and particularly of black trans women, right, where Pose is like the goddess who is like slaying the ballroom dance floors, tens across the board, yes, honey, yes, fierce, that, or the tragic tranny who is struggling to survive, who was just murdered. And both. And both. And it's, it's, the same, it's the same exact thing. So it's like, a, it's, it's collapsing all of those characters into one. I guess I would want to speak to that exact collapsing. Like, um, and I think this is one of the products of the gays, and this is one of the products of, of the movement from legal social control into social control that happens via image and representation, is that it's so important that they drill into us that these images, that these archetypes don't deserve proper health care, proper housing, any education, or a spiritual life, period. Mm -hmm. So what Mammy, Jezebel, and Sapphire have everything, and also plug, and the Misogynoir Reader has an article on the trans panic defense, which is immeasurably important to all of this conversation because the trans black woman in the law system has like also, like Celia the slave, has never been able to defend herself, ever. Mm -hmm. Has no right to self-defense. Mm -hmm. This is something that collapses onto all of us after part two sequitur ventrum, where any femi there's a feminization of the entire race. 
And so in that way, I would say this collapse of fascination, anger, hatred, disgust, uh, sexuality speaks exactly to how we interrelate. Like all of these archetypes speak exactly to how we interrelate. And what I find uh, really intense about, especially how beauty is used to police us, mm -hmm. is that we internalize that so much on the daily because those are issues of pride, those are issues of getting out of the bed, those are affective, those, those, those ways of, of governing us through our emotional connections to each other are the ones that run the deepest and the strongest. Mm -hmm. And that's about going, and like I think recovery from that is about going into hard conversations, mm -hmm. not foreclosing, uh, like generalizations like around like cis or trans people yet until we all sit really also and have a conversation around social justice and around reparation, reparative justice for all of us, point blank too. Mm -hmm. Like the medical apartheid that we've all experienced is a collapse of all of those identities. Right. Um, the, the, the research in the laboratory that is every ghetto has a collapse of all of those identities. And like it's gonna take, um, I think, a reworking of what our common sense is because, mm -hmm. and what I've been thinking about while we've been talking too, and, and a little bit I've been talking to Mandy about, is that we've always had an interpersonal resistance to this, which is common sense, you know? Like, and those, that common sense is a resistance to all these images. The common sense that if we were in a bar right now and someone was coming for you, I would stand in front, you know what I mean? So like maybe in this dispersion, you know, there's not safety, but we do have a moral common sense that I think we have to latch onto and cling to and, and speak to each other through discomfort. Mm. Because there's also, there's a, there's, a dis, there's, a, there's a kind of disrespect to our ancestors to ask for safety at mm. this point. Mm -hmm. there, we have not been safe. There's right. no safety in this right. we. Right. You know what I mean? So exactly. collapsing all of that, yeah. Thank you so much for- But visibility, yeah. for visibility's sake. Who's right. gonna save us? <laughs> right. oh, thank, you. thank you both so much. Thank you, Davia. Appreciate your perspective. Um, okay, so did you have did you have something to say, Duff? Yeah, you. Just talk. Yeah, so I do want to say that um, one thing that I, I have noticed, or something that I I see is that um, I've been feeling that data is connected to how truth is produced. And so I kind of feel, I, I wrote it down because there are so many things <laughs> happening. And so I just, I just wrote down to that data is connected to how truth is produced. So the importance of creating images and, datas, and data ourselves is very important when thinking about, I'm thinking about the potentiality of the mediums. And, um, Something that was is really on my heart right now is just uh, the policing that we do. We do the state's work. A lot of times, when we don't, um, when we don't understand that the queer struggle and the black struggle are tethered together. Um, and I just wanted to say that I see you, and you're beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Duff. Um, is there anybody in the audience that has anything that they want to? Yes, I got microphone right there. Um, after um, we're going to probably go for another like five or ten minutes, and we have a guitar meditation by Garfield. He's getting ready, and we'll just um, we'll wrap this up. Um, I'm Nadi. Hello, everyone. 
Um, I guess something that I was in mid-thought, um, the mic came too soon, but um, something that I was thinking about a lot was how we tend, well, I tend, I'm gonna speak for myself. Um, I tend, when something I'm struggling with right now spiritually in this material world is receiving external validation and like that confirming who I am and like, like how I exist, how I move through this world. Also speaking to how, um, what's your name again? Davia. Um, Davia was saying like how um, visibility is um, kind of like uh, danger, like negative attention, like something that you actually don't want. I'm just like, uh, I, I kind of am, I'm mid-thought, so just flow with me here. Um, thinking a lot about what to do with like whether or not I receive that external validation. What are my actions supposed to be when I move in a space and I'm not affirmed? Um, and then thinking about within the black community and then thinking about like within gender and also just like, this is really broad. Um, I just feel like it, it connects highly to our, our spiritual like existence within ourselves. Um, a lot of the time we have thoughts, we have understandings of way we, of which ways we move um, spiritually and it, it, it interacts with the material, like our actions, what we do on the day to day, um, um, who, the friends that we have, the um, conversations that we have, the things that we wear, um, just trying to say like, yeah, like this looks like how I feel or think or um, see or breathe. And so we do that, we try to affirm ourselves. So what are we to do when we live in a society where currently we are a generation where external validation is on a height, right? We have social media. Um, how we get jobs now is like based so, well it has always been based phenotypically like how we present ourselves. How are, how, I guess it's just like a neutral question, like how are we supposed to move within that? Like how much external validation is enough? Because we know psychologically how we move, how we understand ourselves has a lot to do with our interpersonal relationships. Oh, I have a relationship with this person. They tell me things about myself. I agree or I disagree. Um, where do we go from here? How do we balance ourselves? How do we um, find this type of harmony between the media, the social media, the aspect of uh, somebody telling us, yes, double tap, I like you, I, I see you, um, and uh, versus uh, just having this kind of like solo understanding, this independence um, of like, oh, I am this person regardless of whoever else or whatever else, yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of what's helped me navigate social media and external attention to um, to kind of like please myself in that way, affirm myself. I kind of had had to create a space within that space within the superstructure. Finsta has like this is. This is a community I had to create for myself to like kind of like release this image to like other people outside of myself because I'm usually just in my head about things that I also trust that are also like either black or queer, um, people that I identify with. Some people I don't know very well, but I trust them and like there's like this kind of relationship that happens where you're like affirming each other, like sharing things that are fucked up about the world or about yourself, about anything. And like, it's kind of like this like virtual space where you can like be constantly affirmed or even just like told like, 
I get read all my shit all the time, and like that's okay. Like this nigga right here, she reads me like hard in the comments. I'm like, okay, I I I feel that, and it's like very loving. Everything's loving, and like I created this space because I don't trust the outside space. I don't trust like what's inside of the actual superstructure that's outside of this like little substructure that I've made in it. Um, that space is like you're like constantly constantly surveilled. You're like you're targeted. Um, I'm scared to share certain things that because like I know I could be like someone that is targeted. Like um, black identity extremism, for example, like co coined term by the FBI. Like um, this is a program that was created to uh, um, target black folks, black activists that were like using certain hashtags, making themselves visible in a certain kind of way that threatened their lives. And this is the work that we have to do. And some of our us put ourselves on the line to like do this work, call shit out, but. In that space, you could also be reprimanded for those actions. You could be killed. You could be thrown in jail. Um, so it's like, that's why I have this like extreme anxiety with like operating even just like my like regular page. It's like, okay, now I'm at like 7,000 something followers. Like, who am I speaking to? Who's following me? Why are you following me? There's like so many different ways. Like you like people talking about like hate follows. Like, oh, I follow this person because I hate this nigga. Like, yeah. that's crazy. You're like following their moves, but like you don't even agree with what they're speaking on. Like that kind of stuff. Like I'm just like blown by it. I'm blown by society. It's it's insane. It gives me like so many personal anxieties and like just like worried about my friends as well. Like I was just talking to Mandy. I was like, nigga, you gonna get us killed? The FBI outside right now? Are you talking all this? <laughs> but it's like the work that needs to be done and it's like what we have to say. Like this is a matter of survival. So now like I know certain things have to be said. So I'll say them. But like certain like very personal things like I keep my community to be able to like like have that release and just like a cathartic feeling of like posting a selfie saying I'm really fucking depressed today and it like it, it like helps so you just have to like curate the spaces if you insist um, so I think about like a market economy, which it sucks. It's also why I love this conversation of how we sell ourselves online, because like the essential, like the building blocks of this particular market economy is based on our value being traded. Um, and so I think first of all, anytime you decide like I am, I am the master of my own sale, there is a reclamation. Um, but when we are selling our identity. It is a market economy, right? Um, I think part of what we can do is not just to um, think about the individual practice of um, how we perform self, um, but also thinking about how we can create a new market. Um, I think about, you know, this is not a value judgment, um, but I think about um, the spinning off of like Carefree Black Girl, how that was leveraged into a market and then targeted by like someone like Solange, right? Who has been able to capture um, so much uh, like leadership by love 
really just by looking at something that was like happening and being like, okay, like I have more access to um, means of production, high level production. And so I will create a product for that. Um, but when I think about like, uh, making new markets, I think a lot about like how we pay attention, how we give clicks. Um, I think that the algorithms like on social media probably look not only at how we like, but how we linger as well. And I think, because um, like if you're an advertiser, right, like you, you want you want to know how much time eyeballs were on your thing. They're not going to like it. It's a sponsored. Um, so I think a lot of it is um, like doing what we're doing here. Amelia, thank you. Like this deconstruction and and Maceo, as you said, like <laughs> thank you guys. Um, the IRL URL. So we talked about this. Like um, there's this. Uh, like there's a cell, there's access to a cell, and like there's osmosis, right? And things just float out, and we don't have control. And sometimes things float in. But when we talk like this, we can manage the like openings, manage the membrane precisely. That's not an answer. Thank you for that, Mandy. So, so yeah, so. Um, let me have um, Are, and then, oh, is your, is your point off of what she just said? No, okay, so let's do um, Are quick, and then, Maceo, did you have another point you wanted to make to, after? We'll do Are quick, yeah, I can go after Yeah, we'll bounce this way, and then he hasn't said anything. Hi, okay, so personally, I'm not like a big fan of like Instagram. I don't know why. Um, I've always just kind of felt weird about the control that they have and how people think you can't function as a society because everything has to be on social media. And if you're not there, you're behind or you're not going to like make it or whatever. Like I've had people tell me, oh, also, I don't want to be filmed. So whoever's filming. Only Nico can take a picture. <laughs> um, so I feel like, for example, like I met people who are like, oh, you're a photographer and your Instagram page is private. And I'm like, I don't make this for Instagram likes. Like, I don't want to share shit on there because I don't choose, like, it's not how I prefer to present my stuff. But anyways, I really wanted to speak about your question or just like comment on what you were thinking. I feel like at the end of the day, there's this whole virtual world. And oh, this person followed me yesterday. Oh my God, this person responded to me. And they saw my stuff and didn't respond. And all that shit. I think we all have to just remember that self-mastery and self-love has to come before all of this shit. And it's like, I can post a selfie and get like 3,000 likes and like, oh, good lighting or whatever fucking comment. But it's just like, if you don't like yourself, and all that extra validation is just bullshit because how do you really feel inside and like are you connected to your your gut? Like there's people that I, I meet in real life and I'm just like, I don't really like you. I don't know why. I don't think you're a bad person. But like I just, something is not clicking and it's fine. It's just like I see you and like peace and light. Like keep keep doing you. So I think at the end of the day, also just in, to wrap it up, it's all about like self-love and self-mastery and remembering to keep the connections that feel real 
in real life and sustain them as opposed to just this whole web space where there's this like this very interesting idea of who you are that's defined by how many people know you or can recognize you in public even though you don't even want to be their friend in real life. Anyways. Thank you for that. Um, X, you have some? Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, like Xavier, yeah, go. So this is my cousin, by the way. I've made you come up here. <laughs> no, I really but, enjoyed everybody, um, you know, giving their two cents and, and, and talking about this issue. Um, I guess for me, you know, as I'm processing through a lot of what's being talked about, um, I always come back to, you know, working in schools, I always come back to, um, you know, schools are oftentimes or a, a lot of times are a reflection of society. Um, and what we see happening in schools is just, you know, um, you know, something that on a smaller level, you guys are all talking about. You talk about the imagery, you talk about, um, you were talking about the sapphire, you know, the angry black woman. I, I see that all the time with how, you know, some of our mothers are treated when they come into schools and they have issues with, you know, things that are going on and the way that their child is being treated or talked to, um, you know, and I have an issue with that. Um, and I think, you know, from the standpoint of social media for, you know, I'm specifically in a middle school, but, um, you know, for high school kids, for even younger, for elementary kids now, um, it's a, it's, a, it's a way of validation, you know, for kids to feel validated. You know, you were speaking about, you know, f the number of followers, the number of likes. I mean, this is something that kids really struggle with. Um, and it, it's an issue. Um, and I think that along with that, at the same time, we talk about memes, we talk about, you know, cultural memes that, that connect to, uh, you know, things that, um, you know, whether it's been in entertainment or it's been in uh, music, it's been in whatever um, that we somehow connect with or somehow, you know, is black. You know, I think that for kids who, you know, because in education, you're not, if you're black or if you're brown, you know, you're really not seen in the curriculum at all. Like, you're not seen at all. You don't see yourself at all. And I think that for kids, when there is a meme that comes up that, hey, that's a, that's a TV show I used to watch with my parents, or that's um, a movie that I saw, you know, a while ago, you know, that's their way of at least feeling validated, you know, on some level when maybe their white friend knows about it, you know, or when it's talked about or it's passed around at school. So I think that's another way to look at it, too, because I do see that a lot also where, you know, it can be a form of, hey, at least this is being, this is a way of me being seen or a way of, you know, something that I've experienced, you know, um, being, you know, acknowledged or noticed. Um, because I, it, it's, it's crazy how much, you know, validation that kids don't, don't receive as they go through, you know, our schools, our education system. Um, and, you know, it, it, as far as social emotional, it takes tolls on kids. Thank you, for, thank you for that. Thank you for the work that you do, too. Um, can I quote you about what, there's, a, there's something that Mandy said a while ago on Instagram, everyone should follow her, um, that was about glamorizing our own values instead of waiting the values that we have to be glamorized in sort of like popular culture. Did I misquote? 
something of the sort. So this reminds me of that. And but some of the danger in only seeing ourselves in maybe like pop pop culture imagery is that we think that that's the only place for us to actually um, operate in a way that gets validation. But that's not to discount maybe the really solid and 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 affirming feeling that you get by seeing yourself or seeing something that you know be known by other people. So it's 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 complicated. Uh, Maceo and then Sinai, and then where you want to go? Go ahead. Yeah, and then Maceo. Uh, one of the biggest issues that I have with this, having a presence online is the idea that I have to operate under the you know the assumption that I'm a brand. You know, I think that's a really big issue with this overall is the branding of it because you have to create a brand in order to have ownership. You have, if there wasn't, if you couldn't see people who you deem to be like, I'm cooler than them. I'm, you know, I'm more fly. I'm more popping. I, I create. I do whatever. There's so many archetypes of people that we have proximity to that we see being successful, how we measure success. And so because of that, it's, there's this idea of the branding of, of that entity so that I can get closer to what that success line is and that, that path to success is. And because it's so it's deemed as, uh, because it's so visible, as you were speaking earlier, uh, Davia, uh, like you say, it was the Trans Remembrance Day or Visibility Day. I apologize. I said, yeah, that's what that's that's right. The, I I I've noticed in the last couple of years. I feel like every every person that was once radical, every um, thing that we once deemed as taboo is is somehow being monetized by a brand or the visibility towards it the algorithm is shifting whatever niche of whether it was originally maybe year one it was a thousand people uh, on that electronic pathway clicking towards these, this hashtag that deemed this next year it's ten thousand next year it's a hundred thousand they've deemed that wow I can there's somehow some way I can sell this traffic to an advertiser and now everyone's you see everyone is the um, when you go on the Google homepage the, whatever the day is you know whether it's a uh, um, um, what's the woman from the Stonewall um, Marsh was it Marsha I I, I, I Marshall Peter to see someone that was so villainized in 1969 to now being on this, the the homepage of Google that is something that is an active tool used by CIA, FBI, whatever law enforcement around the around the country to target and harm trans people is now being used in, by an entity to drive traffic towards trans people. It's just like this wouldn't exist if we haven't as a even towards the children, having created this cultural shift into like, I'm a brand, like everything is a brand, because if everything is a brand, then everything can be monetized. And if everything can be monetized, whether it's language, whether it's culture, whether it's our sexuality, whatever, there's always going to be these structural uh, positioning of making money off of these things, whether it's our death. There was a, uh, you know, I, I stopped 
using a lot of social media for a time because I got tired of seeing snuff films. I, that's why I, 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 for a number of years, I, I just felt like every day I'm seeing a black person being murdered and it's not being taken off of the internet, but uh, a, a goose walking into a fire is immediately removed, you know? Even this thing, you know, I, I, I'm a practicing uh, Muslim, and even the thing this, a couple weeks ago in, in, New, in New Zealand, I saw the video. Why am I seeing that video? And not just on, on this entity, I'm seeing on this platform, on this platform, then someone's sending me the video. I try to get off the internet, someone sends me the video through text, it's like, it's inescapable, and that's, the, it's, it's trauma, it's, 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 it's more than just trauma, it's, it's like relentless, you know, like, um, you were talking about self-love, uh, you know, I can love myself as much as I want, but if everyone that I love or everyone who's in my world exists in these, you know, my, I used to be one of these people like, yo, I'm not going nowhere that I'm not invited to. That's just how I feel. But I'm like, I, I'm not going nowhere I'm not personally invited to. But then I notice that everyone keeps going to things. It doesn't mean they don't love me or they don't. They're just like, oh, you didn't see that such and such posted it? Because we're all existing on this platform together. What, what's your problem? And I feel like, you know, I don't mean to, to ramble, but I just seem like these are just common threads that we continually uh, come at odds with. And I think it's a, it's a cultural moment right now that towards children, I think about it too, because I work in a community center, and I think like, why are these kids, want, why do they want to be my friend on social media? I'm not my mother, I don't follow my mother on any social media entity at all. I don't want to engage with her, with her and her old friends is talking about, and I don't want her to engage with mine. But I recognize that that's a boundary that I, I built, but with children, they're like, boundaries don't exist. What's your problem, you know? So this is something I think about a lot. Thank you, Sinai. All right, um, so did you, oh, you, wait, do you, okay, go ahead, Maceo, Maceo's been waiting, and then to write, did you, did you have, okay, and then we're gonna, um, gonna wrap this conversation up. Sure. Go ahead. Um, I, you, you touched on it, but it, it was around a couple things, right? One, boundaries, but then also, I think, just acknowledging the, the difficulty in this, individualistic idea that we can just uh, alchemize our own self-worth as if it's not affirmed by the environment that we're in. It's like we don't even know that we're worthy until somebody loves us. And then we realize like, oh, this act of care is what's sustaining my life, this breast or whatever. And so like we're inherently linked. And so this chicken and the egg of being validated by out what is outside of us, everything that we live off comes from outside of us. We're not we don't, we're, we're not plants that we just absorb sunlight. We need to eat food, we need consume love, and love. that love is given to us from our social environment. So it's about, I think, for me, being intentional about the ways in which we receive that care and that connection, because when it is given to us on the, on the basis of our exploitation or the basis of our performance only, then that, is, that isn't actually love, that's just payment. And so like, if we're gonna work for payment, then we should understand like the terms of that arrangement. But if we're gonna share love and share of our intimate selves and, and expect love as a, as a recip recipro reciprocal agreement, that relationship looks different. It can be looser, it, it includes compassion. It doesn't r include deliverables like desirability and, uh, and so forth and so on. So when, when I operate on social media, Def and I talked about this for a second, like I know that 
certain platforms, and you said this with the Finsta, like I'm there for work. That's like I log into my email, and I'm only in my email because I'm working, right? And then I log off. So I'm not even going to be on Instagram. And I never was. I, st I got on because I had a sock company, right? Facebook is different. I, I got on because I was traveling, and I wanted to keep in touch with my aunts and shit. So it's naming the intention and then being like, oh, cool. So a lack of likes is poor engagement. My product's not going to sell. I'm not a bad person. But that's also not love, right? Like, it's, it, is, it is this idea that when we participate in economies, we're selling a skill, we're selling a thing, we're not selling ourselves. Thank you, Maceo. Um, Teray, did you have, did you, did you, was that a question? Did you have something? Do you want to say it? No? Are you sure? You're DJ Pastel Shade. You have a little privilege here. Um, I, I, I was apprehensive because I don't feel like the idea is fully formed. Um, I'm just stimulated by what's being offered around this conversation of um, self-love and the possibility of that and the reality that some people, you know, I love that you highlighted moving from a, a spirit space or like this indescribable kind of like notion of self that um, kind of informs how you move and the choices that you make. Um, I don't know. I think I... Maybe because of the history of my mental health and and my upbringing, I have like a particular like interest and um, and like passion about uh, the possibility of self love and and um, I I definitely was someone that uh, felt like the whole movement of self care and self love was very like short sighted um, like like. I didn't see it as a reality at all. And I think, you know, and um, let me see what I want to say. Uh, I, I was more stimulated by um, these moments where people allowed me to uh, be negative or, um, you know, share that I wasn't feeling good or um, share that I actually didn't have capacity for something and then didn't demand that I still do something. So, like, um, I don't know how to, like, make that understanding accessible to everyone here, but um, maybe it's related to capitalism and like the ways that we are um, indoctrinated into production um, and the performance of wellness and that maybe capsizing that is actually to um, be unwell and that be um, something that is not, uh, uh, maybe not a personal failing, but also that it isn't something that is then like, okay, you're unwell and now we have to do something about that so that you can produce again, you know? Um, that was what kind of broke a code around like love um, because I, I felt like my internalized uh, means of white supremacy was like, oh, I have to produce, I have to be this uh, very smart black person. I have to be somebody that's willing to be out in the world all the time. And for when I finally was like, I, I, I can't produce anymore, like that's when I found that I could love myself because I, you know, was okay with that. Thank you. Thank you You're good. Uh, Cameron, do you wanted to say something? Go first. Oh, I just want to say really quickly, um, and this is not 
to contrast with anything that anyone has said here, but I believe that we can all be also, also viable market forces. Absolutely, always have been. <laughs> I think that's the thing, is that the dimension of black aesthetics and, the, and that dimension existing completely without any ethical claim has always been the center of American productivity. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, Cameron? Yeah, I just wanted to touch on something that was a frequent topic, which was surveillance. And uh, going forward, as we're trying to chart a path forward, um, we, we desperately need to decouple surveillance capitalism from the digital world. And there's a lot of layers in that. But if we can do so, we can build new worlds that are much more um, ready for us to thrive and uh, much more in frame of our mental health. Um, I've been studying what can be referred to humane tech for a while now, and if anyone is interested, I've got a lot of resources on the matter. What's your name? Cameron. Thank you, Cameron. Anyone? I don't think that's possible. I was going to be honest. I don't think that's possible. I don't think Signal, whatever VPN that they sell to you, is actually what it, it, it plays itself into being. I don't even think on-premise tech can be humane because even out, if we're talking about the algorithm, if you just, you know, if you was looking at uh, Amanda's presentation, you know, there is an inherent flaw in, the co in coding because it's in, in, in the same way that there's an inherent flaw in, in the language that we're speaking right now because of who made it and who, what they look like when they're making it. Yeah. It's just like, you know, I was a kid, but like I, you know, I had like the, the jail uncle who's like, yeah, man, you gotta watch this Malcolm X movie, like this scene right here. And it's funny, you know, it's the dictionary one where he's like, wow, the, all the black words are negative, but all the words that are white are positive. It's the same with code. There's a reason why um, quote-unquote Western standards of beauty exist in the formal, tangible world and in the informal uh, uh, URL world. It's because the same people who exist down in that world created code to make it exist in this one. And I, I think unless you know Wakanda comes out of the sky and, and you know and they come in like, hey, here's new tech <laughs> using code using code that isn't inherently connected to anything you guys are using right now, then yeah, I think that's possible, but I don't, I don't think that's possible. And that's actually funny that she brought up the black identity extremists because I was, I was investigated in one of those cases here due to the fact that I took a photo with a gun that I legally own, much in the same way as all these Trump supporters with the hats that they be wearing walk around with AR-15s and stuff. I took a photo with a, with a gun that I legally own, and within a week, I, was, I had law enforcement come to my house, you know? And it was, and it was in relation to a, a Black Guns Matter meeting that I went to. I went to my home, and I had to show to these police officers that I have a gun safe in my house, you know, that I, I legally am registered. You know, so to see, that, to see something like, I see photos of these people in the middle of the country and it's like 10, 15 likes and they got guns and they got all this stuff, they're not getting investigated. And so, and there's code, there's code inherently because look at the people who finance what we're using right now, CIA, FBI, they're all the early investors in these things that we're using today. So I, when I hear what you're saying, I would like you to, to believe in that, but. We can talk. 
I um, you're you're correct. <laughs> you're correct. Um, it's it's currently currently very far from perfect, but we must try and make it better than it is now, rather than getting it to perfect. But uh, we have seen how it can be much worse in, for instance, China. Yeah, but this conversation also just goes back to reparative struct, like repairing the structures that are damaged. You know, like like say Wakanda wasn't a synthetic proposition, like an outlandish comic book esque like myth. Say after Reconstruction, we had all been enfranchised as human beings again in a legal s citizenship had mattered. Say that language of democracy hadn't fallen apart. Say all these racist images hadn't been produced as governing forces. Like if we if we it wouldn't matter how we felt about how each other looks, feels fucks, eats, and sleeps, if we all could just go to sleep in a bed, wake up in a bed, you know what I mean? If there's basic human rights, like a lot of these issues of representation don't, and how we organize don't matter. But at the moment, I feel like like any you know social media that's not also literally in their structure, like kind of being produced for reparative justice and like working like at a high level for that is like also like, it's just, yeah, I don't know. Thank, sus, thank you, so. Candace. We have some uh, young lady back here that wants to say something really quick, and then Rolando, did you have something? Um, yeah, so this is just going back to what Maceo was talking about um, with having um, like your brand on Instagram, like that you are as a person are not a brand. But um, I feel like there is a lot of. Um, I, I feel I don't feel clear on this because I know with me like for whatever I do which is makeup like I have been talking with agencies and this was a thing that was like really like explained to me that I don't have a brand like that I need to like do more to like grow this so that inherently like people will want to hire me and I have friends who are in tech and have a bunch of followers and have developed brands themselves who are telling me like no you need to get in front of the camera you need to take selfies you need to do this you need to do that it has to be about you people have to like you they have to buy into you and that is going to be like determine whether or not they're going to want to hire you and so I have a really hard time accepting that because I don't want to be in front of the camera. Like I don't want to have to sell myself for people to want to hire me. I mean, I know that it, it is kind of like with anything, like whether people like you or not is going to determine whether you're going to get a job. But I don't want that to be the basis of why people are hiring me. I don't, I don't really know what the question is. I heard what you said and I, I, I understand what you're speaking to, but I don't know how to answer. I'm sorry. What, what's the? Well, that's honest. Yeah. It wasn't a question. I mean, what's? Uh, there was a question implied. It wasn't a question. She was just. A, I, I, you were essentially like just speaking on like is it like the conundrum of like not wanting to have to like pro make yourself a product, yeah. essentially, and then trying to survive yeah. in like that's in, why in the. That's why I was pitching it to, to Whitney, because you seem to have an Instagram, at least your work Instagram, is not all about you, 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 you. There is a connection to humanity, and there's a connection to, like, like to people, <laughs> to people, but, it's, but it's, it's your work. So like the, the difference, I think a lot of times when we do these consulting things around like what's going to make our Instagram grow, we opt into like people care about people, and that's like the shortcut. But I know someone who is an, a graphic designer and nobody likes when she posts pictures of herself. And then 
I know somebody else who is a graphic designer and the pictures that get the most likes are of the artist. So it kind of depends um, on how you like do your your business. But I was gonna say like to you, I'm I don't I actually don't follow you on that account for your face. <laughs> I follow it for your work. So I wanted you to talk about like how you use that for work as an as a as an artist. I don't know. That's that's the only reason. I'm I appreciate that. Uh, I feel like I do it unsuccessfully is the reason that I don't think I'm the person that should answer this. I, I, um, I have a work Instagram for my like nail work and what I find is that so often I'm hired to do jobs where I'm painting nails for some uh, picture of what beauty is that I don't subscribe to. I think we've worked together actually, I feel like. Uh, uh, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to rectify. Um, I remember when I started thinking about my Instagram as an extension of my brand and thinking about branding and whatever, and I think that that was like the death of it being any kind of fun for me at all. When you start thinking about it as like um, you're investing in what other people think of you and you're like sort of like using it. I mean, I like to use it to crowdsource in a personal way. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I fucking hate branding and I think it sucks, but I understand how people have monetized it. I don't know. I don't have a good answer. You do. Um, I think that, a million. you once said um, this thing to me about, like, how much is it worth to you to do exactly what you want to do? Like, yeah. at the end of the day, will you live in your car? So the market is what it is. You have options. The options are to create a new market, uh, participate in the market as it exists, or participate outside of it. Yeah. So it's frankly, you know, and, and then you can like negotiate between a couple of those, right? I will do X, Y, and Z, but I won't do A, B, or C. So, you know, um, I think like to myself, I think like, okay, if it gets really bad, like I really, like, I really need to say what I want to say. I've tried to do good things and like help the world and do social justice things, but it still sucks because um, even in like nonprofits or organizational spaces, people are like, you angry black bitch, stop telling us how to run our organization. So I just have decided like if I need to move home, that's what it's, it's what it's going to be. You know, there's no reason to be overly sentimental about it. If you really fuck with what you're doing, like yeah. that's that's the way to die. That's the way to go out. Period. Yeah. And honestly, um, like I I left LA like three and a half years ago. I like have two storage units. I live with my parents. Still, I don't live here, and I come here to work. I do these meetings. I live in Vegas, in here, and I had to get rid of every all of my. I was making like six figures, and I had to like let all of that go and. I just live completely in myself because I don't have any other choice, but I made it that way because I had to let go of the financial burden of feeling like, oh, if I don't hit this $1,500 rent, that stress to me is not worth me going for my livelihood. Does that make sense? Like, I would rather be, I'd rather, I'd rather not, I'd rather just, you know, be able to go and not worry about that. And one day that will come, but you know, there are sacrifices to be made and you really need to be who you are online. IRL, I mean, if you're gonna be online, I just think the best advice is be fluid through all of it. Like you should sound who you are 
as I speak, I should seem that way online, I should seem that way in text. Even the way you text matters. You know what I mean? Sometimes I'll like, somebody will text me, I'm like, who the fuck is like, like, this is like the different person from who I met, you know, in person. It didn't, doesn't feel like there's a communication. It's all tools for communication. And that's, that's what um, the point of this whole meeting is, and that's what the point of media as reparations is, is that these are tools. It's not that serious. You know, y'all taking yourselves way too serious online, and it needs to stop, because that's why we are not progressing. And in order for us to progress, we need to like acknowledge that there's this technology, it's tools, it's a paintbrush. You know what I mean? And if and do you really want to be in an agency? Like I'm not, I don't have an agent. You know what I mean? And I feel like I work everybody that I work with on sets, everybody's everybody's represented except for me. You know, what am I gonna do? Like, you know, bend over for these white folks and do all these things so that I can be with agent with, you know, with I don't know what who's what's the biggest open what's the biggest agency right now I don't know like you know what I mean like like to to bend just to adhere to that it's like you maybe maybe it's not for you yeah. you know what I mean I mean maybe there's other ways this is a really exciting time because like all of this normative stuff in media and like agencies and all of this it's like breaking down it's not. This is all changing around, like, you know what I mean? Um, I think it's a really exciting time, and I know that it's hard to get those kind of emails and conversations, but it's like, I don't know, we can't, I just, I, I, it's never, it's, it's capitalism, you know? It's money, it's like money before people, and they're never, it, it's the structures and us making our own media, what was it that you said that Issa Rae said, Ruth, about the, working horizontally instead of ver vertical? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, like collaborating. Um, well, you guys, can you guys give yourselves a round of applause? And give our conversationalists a round of applause. Thank you so much for holding space for like all your patience. This was a this was a heavy, long conversation, and I feel like it can't even it can't even like it can just keep going. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna have Garfield. Everyone, if you want to relax, we're just gonna. We're gonna like, we're just gonna like transition into a little, into a, um, a relaxing state. Uh, Garfield is going to play a guitar meditation for about eight minutes and then we're gonna do some karaoke. So thank you guys. Also, um, thank you guys. There's, we have a $5 sliding scale donation and if you don't have it, it's fine, but you could donate to Sisters with Invoices on, um, on Venmo. We have different options. Um, your money helps pay for the food, for the drinks, for, um, yeah, to keep these meetings going. So it's all appreciated if you could contribute. Thank you. Hi.